Coming up on this episode of the podcast Under the Stairs, we continue our look into the T-Putts Summer Top 10 series of shows, continuing the top 10 horror movies of the 1970s. And upon this episode, we look at 1977. But before we get into that, this is year four, motherfuckers, and you know what that means? This time, it's war. Warning. The podcast under the stairs is not safe for work. We'll feature movie spoilers and language which most listeners may find offensive. Brought to you in conjunction with Legion Podcast Network. Welcome to the podcast under the stairs. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. This is episode 120. I'm your host Duncan McLeish and welcome to the show. On episode 120 we continue our look into the Teapot's Top 10 series of shows which runs right through the summer. We're almost out of summer now and which means we're almost finished this series of shows. We have only three years left to discuss in this top 10 series looking at the top 10 horror movies of the 1970s up on this episode we're looking at 1977 and after the break i'll be joined by my special guest doug tilly from no budget nightmares and eric roberts is the fucking man podcast 1977 is a beast of a year for horror movies in fact these last three episodes will contain some of the creme a la creme of horror movies from the decade known as the 70s. I just want to um, do a little bit of housekeeping up front at the beginning of this episode to say that uh, once again thank you very much for all the support from our anniversary show. Um, I'm putting this episode out the same week as I put out the 1976 episode and next week you're getting another two episodes dropping the final two of this run of top 10 shows will land next week and then we will have a break a one week break away from doing teapots top 10 shows in that time period we will make public the list of 20 movies and you the listeners will have the opportunity to rank them as you see fit and submit them in to come to the round table for the culmination of the shortlist down to 10 we'll have a, a list of 10 movies um, selected jointly by the five guest hosts and myself. We'll also have a, a top 10 as selected by the listeners collectively and then we'll combine them together to create the definitive Teapot's top 10 horror movies using Noah's Ark rules for the 1970s. It's pretty incredible. I can't believe we got through this as painfully or painlessly as it has been thus far. Um, I, I'm not crying about any of the movies that went through so far but um, the shows are still young there's still three episodes left so uh, just to let you know that next week we will conclude this series 
before the round table. So we'll get 1978 and 1979 Monday and Thursday next week, respectively. Then there's a couple of bits and bobs that will happen um, in the interim before the round table show. We have a special bonus episode uh, dropping at the end of September featuring The Baz and Big Sexy Dave, where we look at two movies which I can't wait. Uh, till you guys hear how that conversation went because the show's already recorded and then it's Baz v Halloween Territory five episodes, five weeks of the Baz tackling five movies selected by the listeners and five movies selected by me to see who wins out in this ultimate competition but before we even get to any of that let's refocus ourselves to 1977 what a year and horror cinema it was. So I'm going to take a very short break. You're going to hear promos for shows that I love. You're going to hear the intro music for the Teapots Summer Top 10. And when I return, I'll be joined by my guest, Mr. Doug Tilly. All that and more right after this. 72 movies that shocked a nation and made an infamous list, the video nasties. Hi, I'm Duncan McLeish and you can join me and my co-host Andy Blockley Hello, hello As we chat about the 72 films, reviewing them all from the Video Nasty List live on our podcast Tell them about it Andy Okay, in 1982, 20,000 films were seized in London alone because they were too nasty to be watched Come and find out why That's right, the show's called Doing the Nasty Podcast You can find it exclusively on the Horrorphilia Network of Podcasts Come and check us out There's no more room in hell. The dead will walk here. You know the thing about a shaggy skin? Lifeless eyes. Black eyes, like a doll's eye. The name is Dracula! Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. So, we are so tantalisingly close to the end. We we are making the run now, the, the final run in the last three years of this decade. And um, that means we're looking at 1977. As if this hadn't been an exhaustive experience thus far, tackling some of the greatest horror movies ever and me breaking... <laughs> breaking the wall and allowing you to peek behind the curtain. This is technically the last recording for this top 10 series. I've been recording them out of order and out of sync um, to accommodate my guests who obviously don't want to put on too much pressure <laughs> during recording and stuff. So this is technically the last recording 
third last in the sequence. So many amazing movies. 1977. I had to bring back a man that I knew for a fact would bring the thunder. Bring the thunder with his selection of movies. And I like to think that I've thrown a couple of curveballs back his way. It is my very good friend. He is one half of the No Budget Nightmares and the mastermind behind Eric Roberts' is The Fucking Man podcast. Is of course the fantastic Doug Tilly. How are you doing, sir? Doing very, very well. You know, uh, we mentioned on the previous episode for 1972 that we did that it was sort of a transitional year. And I feel that 1977 sort of fits into that category mm-hmm. as well. 78, you know, there are those clear outliers of, of what's kind of pushing things forward. But 77, you know, there's a real mix here, just like it was in 72, which is what makes this such a fun uh, and, and kind of exhaustive <laughs> year to go through. <laughs> this is officially the last year on my list that is kind of dominated by... When I say dominated, I mean like with a high quantity of foreign horror movies. Mm. Um, moving forward, like the American machine really kicks into gear um, 78 and 79 and starts churning out a phenomenal... It's like the precursor to essentially the US domination of horror that we get in the 80s. Um and the, there are hints of it here, but there, you know we're still getting the, the kind of tail end of of some fantastic Italian cinema. But mm-hmm. we're also like expanding it. It's, it's a great list. I might as well just rattle through it just now. We we are going to be discussing for nineteen seventy seven, Suspiria. We're going to be doing Houseu, Orca, Eraserhead, The Hills Have Eyes, The Sentinel, Shockwaves, aka Almost Human, Shock, aka Beyond the Door. The Psychic and Rabid. So there's a really, like you were saying, there's a good mix here. We have Exploitation, we have Supernatural, we have uh, Jally. We, we're, we're all over the place. Uh, we've got a bit of Cronenberg, we've got a bit of Argento. Um, like some of the big Wes Cravens in the mix. Uh, I was going to say Michael mm-hmm. Winner, but I don't know if he classes <laughs> as, a, as a heavy hitter. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. We have three directors in common with the 1972 list we have Wes Craven Lucio Fulci and Mario yeah. Baba on this list so it's, a, it's when you think about it like the 80s were probably similar in that there's a handful of directors that you know are like powerhouses throughout that decade that really kind of start mm-hmm. in this decade this is like where the the kind of the start the, the show running so to speak and mm-hmm. then power right through and I was thinking about this earlier on we don't actually have I think that's the issue with horror just now is like horror keeps trying to as an industry or or the horror media keep trying to pin the flag on the next group of directors that are going to be your next John Carpenter's your next Wes Craven's right. and all the rest and I don't think that's fair I, I, don't, I don't think it's fair because when Carpenter and Craven and Romero were all coming up they were really innovators that had the opportunity to innovate. And I think nowadays the movie-making machine doesn't want innovation. It wants directors that can attach themselves to already known projects within already confined spaces to create horror movies that on some level feel aesthetically like everything else. And I think it's difficult to... I think that's probably why when one gets a breakout hit whether it's someone like a Rob Zombie uh, with the Devil's Rejects or if it's like an Eli Roth with um, Hostel like so much pressure are put on those directors which ultimately leads to the disappointment because 
we've we've put too much on them at the start. Um, and it kind of like when you think of someone like Carpenter, Carpenter's maybe, you know, Halloween's a huge hit, and it's it's, it's a couple mm-hmm. of couple of projects in for him definitely. But even then, once he's got that Halloween behind him, he's still he's still off making quirky projects like The Fog yeah. and you know Escape from New York before he's like coming out with things like The Thing, which was a commercial failure, or, or the or the or the Elvis biopic, <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. I mean, it could, and I mean, if you really think about his career. We love so many of his '80s films, but as they're going from year to year, they're they're weird projects, right? Going Starman and Big Trouble in Little China, and They Live. They're all so very mm-hmm. different. But you're exactly right. If you got a big horror hit right now, then the first thing they're going to do is try to tie you to some sort of established property next, yeah. uh, and maybe won't even be in the horror genre, depending on where your interests lie. And then suddenly, instead of making you know five diverse projects, you're gonna do the next star wars movie or something like that yeah it's, it's, it's such a strange it's such a strange thing um and i kind of feel I, I i don't often feel sorry for people but i do i feel horry like really sorry for um for horror directors trying to that i think that's why the indie scene is so vibrant just now is that right. you can really but even then if you have a hit indie movie the next movie that a lot of these hit indie guys end up with is a sequel to an established blumhouse project you right. know what I mean? So if you look at any, if you look at anything along the lines of what we've had over the last couple of years, it's all um, whether it's uh, the the Citadel, um, the, the great Irish horror movie. The guy that mm-hmm. did that movie landed. Um, what was that one? Uh, I can't remember. It was the one with. Um, I was on a roll and I've been derailed. <laughs> uh, it was that horror movie with the. The creepy figure in the Super 8 films and, and oh, uh, Sinister, uh, Sinister. Yeah, he landed Sinister right. too, which didn't turn out all that great. Mike Flanagan landed um, Ouija too, which was actually surprisingly mm-hmm. good. Although I shouldn't say surprisingly good, he's a great director. And I saw the new Annabelle movie, which was right. actually pretty good. <laughs> I've heard good things, though. I have to be honest, I'm not a fan of those Conjuring universe movies as yeah, a whole. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same as you. I went in very weary because I saw that first Annabelle movie and it sucked. It was just like the most derivative <laughs> horror movie I'd seen in a long time where I was like that. There is no original thought at all. This has been purely made by committee where someone's like that. Oh, we need to have like an exorcist scene and you know what else we need? A Chucky scene in here. It just felt like a paint-by-numbers horror movie. And this one I... actually felt like it had been a bit of time in consideration, but the guy that did that was the guy that directed Lights Out. Which yeah, wasn't right. a great horror movie, but had some genuinely creepy scenes in it, and I actually thought that was pretty good, considering it was based on a two-minute YouTube clip. Um, you know <laughs> what I mean? So I think, I think that's where it happens. If you have a good indie hit or a movie that flies under the radar that people start getting attached to and like really enjoying, and word of mouth spreads around, you land a sequel, and then maybe off the back of that, you get an original project. Um, but then I think the, the one one great thing about horror as a genre still is that it's really the only genre that you can still get studios to to make the movies for like 13 or 20 million or 30 million as opposed to pushing those huge budgets. Right. I mean, Annabelle, too, has already been a giant hit because, you know, it's a moderately budgeted movie. But these days, because there's no there's either, you know, tiny budgets or huge budgets and there's so little in between that you can't make 
these diverse projects because it's too much of a risk, mm. right? I always think about the directors like, like Astron Six, of course, who directed the editor or the group, I should say, the the collective that directed the editor and Manborg and Father's Day. And uh, I remember seeing the premiere of the editor at the Toronto International Film Festival a couple of years ago. And during the Q&A, they're all talking about how, you know, they all still have day jobs because they can't afford to yeah. be making movies full time. And how sad is that, right? These guys who, you know, this isn't their second film, right? They're already like four movies in. This one is premiering at the Toronto International Film Festival, but they can't make a living at it because the budgets are either super small or so out of control that they, they can't even go near them. Yeah, it's crazy. The editor was such a good movie as well. <laughs> yeah. Super good. And they, they are talented. That's a, that's a group that you know for a fact have a passion for cinema. Exactly. You know, they're not just wanting to do it for fame or anything like that. That's a, that's a group that genuinely loves the subject matter that they, 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 they tackle. It's, it's, a weird, it's a weird state of affairs. Um, you compare that to, to what we're about to talk about here. In 77, people are making... <laughs> really diverse, really strange, really weird and wonderful movies which are all over the place. We were going to be talking about some weird shit on this show. And I'm I'm so happy about it, but it just it makes you wonder, you know, um at what point I mean that's probably the only thing that I could say is the the big thing for me with a like a studio like Blumhouse, which for the most part has that five million dollar limit on their movies, unless mm-hmm. you're someone like a M. Night Shyamalan, uh, who gets a bit more money flung at him, but the majority of movies that come out of that studio are made for less than five million, and almost every single one of them this year has, you know, more than ten times the amount of money that was originally invested and brought back to that studio. So, I mean, mm-hmm. they've got they've got it down. They've they've got the kind of Roger Corman mentality of of making movies. It's like, right, this is what we're doing. This is the project. We, we need to get across the line for this shot within this time period and all the rest and, and they bring it out and some of them have been excellent and I mean if they can give if they can have someone like Jordan Peele walk into an office who is known for comedy walk in there and say I want to do this very socially aware um, horror movie and they can back him and then you see the results of that I just kind of hope that more people get that opportunity because um, I think it, it only benefits us I, I, not every movie has to be a rocket success but when you get the diversity like that in the genre I think it only betters things and you know when they start mm-hmm. like I imagine that there are there were people out there in studios sitting down trying to crunch the numbers to understand why Get Out made what 200 million <laughs> yeah I mean it, I, in fact I think worldwide significantly more than that I mean a hugely massively profitable movie but I mean I think horror is just one of those genres and especially horror that is uh, that is trying to say something, that is making some sort of social commentary. That's something that Hollywood studios just can't capture because it's always going to be one step ahead of that yeah, curve, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's it's one of the yeah. I don't, and that's what makes it exciting. I genuinely don't know. Um, I watched oh, this is a tangent slightly, but I watched a movie called It Stains the Sand Red um, mm-hmm. during the week. It's done by the guys that did um, Grave Encounters. And it's a kind of take on the zombie movie, and I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was I thought it was excellent because it just didn't feel like a zombie movie that I'd seen before. It, it it came across as like a weird combination of like the battery meets Fido. <laughs> okay, all right, I'm on board already. Yeah, it, it's really, it takes a twist and a turn at one point, and I was like, "This is this is bloody brilliant." 
Um, and that's what's exciting. I'd not heard a word about that movie uh, until, like, I think it was February, and it debuted at, it debuted in the UK at the Glasgow Fright Fest. And a friend of the show, uh, Boz, had been to see it um, from the Little Pod of Horrors. And that was the one that he told me at the time. He's like, that, keep your eye open for this one. It's a really good movie. It's finally found its way into a medium where you can stream it now. And yeah, it's. It's a really good movie. Had heard nothing about the project. And you get that. You just get these little projects that start appearing, especially at this time of year, towards the end of the year, where things are getting getting released straight to to iTunes or, or, you know, VOD or straight onto, like, streaming platforms like like a Netflix or an Amazon Prime. And you sit down, you take take your risk. Some of them are amazing. Some of them are not. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, if if you play your cards right, hopefully you get something fantastic at the end of it. Um... Which brings us to, and I say fantastic at the end of it, uh, this final recording that I'm doing and these fantastic movies we're going to cover. Um, it ca- most of them are fantastic. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, most of them, yeah. A couple of them are a bit shaky. Um, so let's let's kick us off with... Uh, <laughs> let's kick us off with um, The Sentinel. Because when mm. you did your list, you said to me that one of the things that kind of... I think it was one of these things that you wish you'd had room to put the Sentinel in. You're one. Right. Uh, and I was like, don't worry, buddy, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Look, I've got five picks right <laughs> after you, and there's no way I'm putting through uh, a list which doesn't have the Sentinel. Um, so the Sentinel is directed by Michael Winner, most notably known for the Death Wish series. And, the, and being just kind of a generally a giant dickhead, according to just about everybody while he was yeah, alive. Yeah, he had a weird run of, if you ever get the chance, uh, you can type in a insurance commercial Michael Winner in YouTube. Um, and he had this weird run of commercials in the UK where something would happen, like a woman would start getting erratic. And this is like fairly recently. It was like it was a total patronising campaign. The woman would get in a bit of panic, and he would appear out of nowhere and say, "Calm down, dear. It's only a commercial." And oh, you were like, "Oh, really, Michael Winner?" Um, <laughs> I don't know why. Like, I really don't know why. It's like they have um, a Harvey Keitel like sales insurance in the UK here as Winston Wolf from. Yes, I heard about yeah, that. He, like appears and he's like he, he appears in character to do. Insurance. The UK is a weird place. Um, but anyway, <laughs> moving off topic. Uh, so, uh, directed by Michael Winner, um, starring Chris Sarandon, Christina Raines, Martin Balsam, uh, Jeff Goldblum, uh, Ava Gardner. Synopsis listed on IMDb is Not ready for marriage, a fashion model moves into an unbelievably cheap Brooklyn Heights apartment where weird occurrences turn into much more frightening turns of events. Um, so, I reviewed this one. I want to say last year. I can never remember. I'm so far into this now, so long in the tooth, I can't remember. Um, and I loved it. I'd, I'd, like, I'd seen it. I, I want to say I'd seen it once before. I can never remember. Um, but watching it this time around, I, I just... It's a really interesting, creepy little movie. Um, and it kind of plays off, you know, obviously kind of plays off to an extent, the sort of vibe that you would get from a Rosemary's Baby sort of mm-hmm. environment it's kind of like Rosemary Baby Rosemary's Baby meets Todd Browning's The Freaks um, and, like a really weird thing and that was the first thing I was going to say is obviously there was there was a high level of controversy um, about the, the film because Michael Winner decided to use people with 
proper, you know, like the people that actually were disabled or handicapped um, instead of using prosthetics or, or, or things like that, which, you know, drove up a bit of controversy. I, I don't know if we are at a stage now in 2017 where that still doesn't, you know, turn a head, <laughs> like an, obje- an accusatory objectional head sure. towards it. I think the most recent one was Under the Skin. Um, which mm. deliberately cast someone who had a you know a kind of birth defect that made him look a particular way to save out in it, and it's like an incredibly effective scene in the way they shot it. But you know this was a, a bone of contention. Michael Winner, <laughs> like you said, is kind of universally known as being a bit of a dickhead. Um, and if you've watched the Death Wish series, you realise the man had a bit of a sleazy side which he didn't really shy away from, uh, particularly in the 80s. Um, so we're kind of getting the tail the tail end of the 70s and we're getting a glimpse of that uh, that Michael Winner-ness kind of coming through. But I think it's a really good story. I think it genuinely is quite creepy. I love the end of it. The ending is such a... such a kick in the dick, uh, for lack of a better phrase. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so this almost made your list, and obviously we're going to move into movies, but tell me why you love The Sentinel. Okay, I got a couple of things to say first. One is that if you haven't seen that canon documentary from a few years ago and you're curious about why Michael Winner is, uh, we're considering him an asshole, there's like five different people talking head interviews talking about how much of a dickhead he was in the <laughs> 80s. Where, where, uh, I remember actually Michael Winner right um, right before he died, like the, like maybe the, the previous two years, he was like a regular fixture on Twitter. Like he was tweeting all the time and he was a very entertaining person to follow. But boy, there was no doubt at all about how much of a jerk he <laughs> seemed to be. And I also wanted to bring up, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of controversy regarding the the deformities, I guess you could say, on di- display in the in the at least the final act of The Sentinel. But what's interesting, I thought, was that, you know, one of the other movies we're going to talk about uh, features an actor who has a specific condition and that's used to horrific effect mm-hmm. as well. And that and, and it's interesting that, you know, that that isn't considered as uh, off color as the usage in these in this particular uh, example. That said, I can see very much see, uh, especially in, in, you know, they're almost like tumorous type uh, extrusions on yeah. their faces. I mean, it can be really unpleasant to look at. And especially when it's used specifically to kind of freak out the audience as um, uh, kind of like almost like a jump scare. Uh, I can see why there's some difficulty. Anyway, The Sentinel is an incredibly entertaining movie, but it's not entertaining for a lot of the reasons that you might think it's going to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the horror aspect of it. It's kind of like generally creepy. And then the final 15 minutes is legitimately scary and great and awesome. And everything before that is just kind of generally up and down building until those last 15 minutes. Those 15 minutes are good enough to make the whole thing worth it. But, you know, it's it's a long time getting yeah. there. It reminds it, you know, it, it and but the reason that I enjoy watching it so much is that this cast is crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's so crazy because like even the Jerry Orbach from Line Order shows up uh, with a Hitler mustache at one point. Uh, Christopher Walken is in this movie, like b- barely speaks at all. Right? Just it 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 literally has a half dozen actors who are going to become incredibly famous 
right before they hit, like just immediately before. Beverly D'Angelo's here, Tom Berenger makes an appearance right at the very end of the movie. Um, as you mentioned before, uh, yeah, yeah there, we, of course, there's Chris Sarandon who would go on to a lot of success. Mm-hmm. Then you have other actors at the tail end of their career, like Martin Balsam and John Carradine, basically looking like death here. Uh, <laughs> Jose Ferrer and Ava Gardner. I mean, Burgess Meredith, of course, oh, yeah. who's amazing in this. So it's it has such an incredible cast and a diverse cast. Eli Wallach is here too, of course. Um, that that I just like when I'm watching it, I'm just waiting for the next actor to pop up. That's kind of how I play mm-hmm. it. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of. It's kind of a sanitized horror in a lot yeah. of ways for the first half. You know, it's there isn't that much interesting going on. I feel like Christina Reigns, the the lead actress in this, she's. Not it's not a particularly great performance, and it's hard to kind of connect with her, especially because she feels herself so out of out of her depth uh, in regards to what's happening to her. She doesn't really know. It's very similar in some ways to the performance in The Psychic, which we'll talk about in just a oh, little yes. bit. Uh, but but once things hit, and once you get that twist at the end, it you you leave the movie thinking, "Wow, I just saw something great." But if you revisit it, it does feel like it's kind of slow going to those final moments. It also, of course. It's tied into the religious horror that was very popular at that mm-hmm. time. Things like The Omen and and you mentioned Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, of course. I mean, it's hard not to see those movies when you're watching this. But it's very – it leans heavily on that religious side, the idea that, you know, the, these are biblical references that are, that are occurring here. And these are uh, – basically the Catholic Church is protecting the earth because of – anyway, I don't want to give away <laughs> too much regarding the end. But, I mean, it, it is very much steeped in faith, which a lot of great horror is. But, you know, if, if you're skeptical about that kind of thing, you might also have some difficulty with the Sentinel. But it is, as as kind of star-studded trash, it is incredibly entertaining. I don't think it's necessarily a great movie. I know some people really, really love it. Uh, I think it has great moments and a great cast, but uh, it's certainly worthy of being on this list because, you know, once we get closer to uh, to – say, the end of the top 10 that we put together, things get a little bit more inconsistent. Yes, this is true. This is true. Um, Do you think, I just thought of this while we were talking about it here, do you think The Sentinel, any potential influence on Filchi with The Beyond? Now, that's a great question, because certainly in those last few minutes, it felt very Mm Filchi-esque. Um, and honestly, uh, another one of the movies we're going to talk about also felt kind of beyond-esque in the final few mm-hmm. minutes. Um, and, and you even have that kind of the glazed over eyes uh, that, that even though in this case it represents blindness, uh, it, 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 it's hard not to get that kind of feeling. And of course, this was a fairly big budgeted horror movie of that time period. I mean, it, 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 Michael Winner had already hit with Death Wish. So, you know, this, this got a wide release. So it's fully possible, um, certainly without... The Fabio Frizi music in the background. <laughs> it doesn't have quite the same effect. And I'll tell you, I, I like the Sentinel a lot, but it's no beyond. No, no, you will have no argument from me there at all. Right, let's let's turn <laughs> our attention away from the Sentinel and let's uh, let's talk about this. To me, is a heavy hitter. Um, one that I hadn't actually went back to check for a long, long time, um, and I don't know why with this one because. I love the director. I'm currently running a whole series of shows, um, going through Twin Peaks at the moment, and uh, with with one of the guys that's continuing this journey of uh, top ten seventies horror, Bo Ransdell. And um, I can't remember the last time I watched a Razorhead, and I think the reason behind it is that I think every time 
I'd watched a Razorhead in the past. It had been <laughs> I wasn't a father at that time, um, sure. and it was it made me quite uncomfortable. Um, I, I can say that watching it as a father makes it even more uncomfortable. Um, I talk about like debuts that literally signal to the world that something new has arrived and you are not ready for it. I mean, David Lynch coming out with a razor head literally, in my eyes, like is like this this weird artistic avant-garde sort of. <clears throat> it's kind of the, the way I imagine when people went to see like German expressionism for the first time, you know, like mm-hmm. the like the absolutely like the twenties, and were just like captivated by the the, the digital well not digital but um, the, the the trickery that could be performed with sets and camera angles and David Lynch comes out with something which is arguably his most difficult movie. Um, very arguably yeah, yeah um i mean he's not one for 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 going into his narratives he will generally in interviews humor people and he has like there are certain movies where he will give a bit more information of of a razor head he has never really went into any detail about anything the the famous quote the one that i love um is that an interviewer once asked him uh, he said I've heard you say once before that Razorhead is your most religious movie to date. And David Lynch goes, yes. And he goes, care to elaborate on that? And he goes, no. Um, no. Which I just think is just... If, you, if you're that guy asking that question, you're just like, oh, he's going to answer. No. Um, it's a... Yeah, watching it back is a, is a pretty chilling movie. Um, like, I, I kind of begin to... Like, I watched it yesterday and... Um, like I say, I've not watched this in many years, and now being being a father, um, and having went through, you know, obviously having a, a tiny, tiny baby in the house and stuff, and there are so many metaphors and so many, there's so much here that you can look into, um, and, and see it as very much this kind of fear of, of being a parent, maybe, um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's like, it's just done in such a weird, abstract way that. Like watching this movie, one of the greatest bits of fact, kind of factoids that I found about this movie is that Stanley Kubrick made the entire cast of The Shining watch this movie, amongst others, but to get in the mood for filming a horror picture. Picture. So when you have Kubrick, who is by this point, you know, like, is like one of one of the most prolific directors of the time, picking this weird little movie that this guy's done a couple of years before. Um, and saying right watch this movie to get a sense of what horror is and I mean for the most part if you look at horror lists Eraserhead doesn't generally jump to the forefront and it's weird Absolutely. It, it's weird that it doesn't I mean this is like this is the epitome of the midnight movie you know what I mean it, that's mm-hmm. it, that's that's how it was it was run it's not a particularly long movie it's it's very very subjective it's got a, I mean this is like the first I think the first time we meet Jack Nance, you know, mm-hmm. who's a long-time Lynch contributor, but he plays a blinder. Very little dialogue in the movie. Um, really strange. Um, how do you, like, see, when you come to do a list and you know that on a list like this you're going to carry two movies forward, um, <laughs> how do you begin to make the case for a Razorhead, Doug? 
Well, I mean, like you said, I think a lot of people might maybe dismiss isn't the right word, but maybe not think of it in regards to a horror list. I think of Eraserhead as maybe the best anxiety movie ever mm -hmm. made, right? It's really about those feelings that you can't quite define. And not being a father myself, I feel like that does definitely add another level of horror to it. But really, it's about that anxiety of relationships, of fathering a child, of the concerns that you have of this particular part of your life. I also find that Eraserhead ages with you. Yep. When I saw this first as a teenager, you know, I felt something from it, but it was very kind of difficult for me to define. And I like, you know, I love the imagery of it. And I'm like, this is so strange. I want to know more about this. And then you, you know, uh, then I get a little older and then you're looking online. You're like, what does this mean? What does this mean? As if, as if there's these like easy answers to everything. But Eraserhead is a really revolutionary movie in a lot of ways, right? This is something that took years to make. Uh, and of course it's not, completely it's not completely coming from left field i mean surrealism in movies was was you know back to the silent era and jodorowsky was making uh, you know the very kind of surreal strange movies midnight style movies for years up to the, the point of razorhead was even starting to be made but this is a completely different animal because it feels like it's coming from a different part of the brain than other than other directors were trying and you know he was able to rope people in to say this is my vision. This is what I want it to be. And convince them that, you know, to go along with it to the point where when you see Eraserhead, it's like David Lynch's, I mean, I'm sure there's compromises here, but it feels like as pure an example of what he wants to make as you can get, which is so rare to see, right? I mean, you can't mistake a David Lynch movie for anyone yeah. else's movies. Now, in terms of the horror aspect of it, it's horrifying, right? I mean, there, there's, 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 there's violent images on display here, but it's not a very violent movie. It's just a really horrifying one because of the implications. But that, the, how, how horrifying it is depends on you, because, like you said, it's a very subjective viewing experience and what you're taking out of it. I mean, there's a huge number of people who could watch Eraserhead and come out of it thinking, oh, that's just nonsense. None of it means anything. And I mean, I think that goes for a lot of David Lynch work. I'll tell you, the first time I watched Lost Highway, when I watched it, I was like, I don't know if that really meant anything. And then you revisit it a few years afterwards. It's like, oh, I'm starting to see the edges of meeting here. And it's starting to connect with me on a different level. And sometimes you just got to let go and let the images kind of overtake you a little bit. I know that sounds kind of um, kind of hippy dippy in some ways, but really you do, because this is a different kind of filmmaking than you would get out of, out of kind of the Hollywood system. But Eraserhead, to me, is it's anxiety for me is, it's it, in some ways, I have you know issues with anxiety in my daily life. It's something that kind of consumes me sometimes. And when that gets too strong, there's really nothing more horrifying to me than, than uncontrolled anxiety. So I, I would argue that Eraserhead is one of the most purely terrifying of the movies on this list because it creates an unease that those other films just can't. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're talking about like understanding um, a particular style of filmmaking which is unlike any others, I mean, there's a reason that things are described as Lynchian, um, hmm. and that you know that is now in the lexicon of of you know cinephiles. They they understand what that means and how it's used. I mean, the the, the in the UK they did a top. 100 movies of the, the top 100 movies of the 20th century mm -hmm. um, last year and at number one in the UK was Mulholland Drive and that was by critics right. and members of the public and I would mm -hmm. love to say that that's indicative of your average cinema gore in the UK <laughs> but it's not but the fact that that won out 
Um, and that's a movie that once again is it doesn't exactly it doesn't exactly drive a narrative which is easy to follow throughout that movie and I think Lynch first and foremost if you ask him you know he makes films and all the rest but the man is an artist he's he's a painter that's what he does he paints and I think that's how you approach his movies I think everyone that looks at the same painting doesn't have the same opinion um, and movies in their purest form should be the same even if an even if a story is you know a to b to c told narratively and um, very mm-hmm. linear i think there is always room to start to ascertain what you think the director means by why did he put the camera there i mean this is film students sure. go through this and it's all to do with choices i think with lynch i think it's all about that understanding that you never really know what he is trying to do so once you drop that and go in and approach a movie I think that's when you start to I think that's when they start to maybe not necessarily make sense but the burden is off you as if you were to try and work out why he's doing things like that and when you experience something like a Razorhead um, like I say every time I watch it I feel different and this time it was a completely different watch for me because mm-hmm. my environment's changed and I, I think that's fascinating I think that's like the hallmarks are really really good you know storyteller or filmmaker is to make something that will change with you throughout your whole life like your different circumstances Absolutely. I think that's that's pure cinema isn't it really that's and it, it really kind of justifies that, that that revisiting it there are lots of movies that don't benefit necessarily from rewatching. If anything, it makes them kind of become lesser mm-hmm. once you kind of re-experience it because you can never really recapture that first time. But I mean, the, the thing about David Lynch movies is that they really do split audiences in yeah. some ways because nobody likes to watch something or experience any sort of art and feel stupid because they're not getting it, right? They, no one likes that feeling, nobody. Uh, and I feel like because of that, and, and that's not the only uh, movie on this list that's kind of like that, when people see it and they're like confused and they're maybe not following it and maybe it does need a second viewing to really sink in some people's reaction to that is just to become oh i hate that that's garbage right and you see those sort of reactions all the time and and uh, to me if you have a strong visceral reaction one way or the other positive or negative then you really deserve to wait a couple of years and give it another try and see if those feelings are kind of crystallized or maybe they are adjusted somewhat because uh, a strong emotional reaction that's hard to get it's it's no matter what it's better than than falling in the middle you know exactly exactly right let's turn our attention to uh, <laughs> let's move away from something which is pure cinema um to something that's something uh, so shockwaves <laughs> aka <laughs> almost human uh, directed by ken wiederhorn um who is most notable most notable for his his run of tv um, stuff that he did he had a lot of TV episodes um, including seven um, episodes of Freddy's Nightmares he was the, the director behind so a lot of work over there um, this one has once again pretty pretty good cast of, of people that were heading towards the end of their careers uh, Peter Cushion, John Carradine Brooke Adams, uh, Fred Booth Dan, uh, Jack Davidson Luke Halpin, uh, DJ DJ Sydney. A synopsis for this one. Visitors to a remote island discover that a reclusive Nazi 
commandant has been breeding a group of zombie soldiers, as you do um, when you're when you're on. <laughs> I'll tell island. you that plot makes that plot makes it seem a, a lot more exploitative than it actually is when you're actually watching. Yeah, it. Th- this is one of these ones. Like, see when people talk about um, the eighties being the decade of you know these really over the top. VHS covers that you'd see and you'd be like that I want to watch this movie so much Shockwaves has like an absolutely bitching cover art that really you're like mm. I want to watch this movie and then you sit down and you, you realise it's maybe not what you thought you were getting um, <laughs> had you seen this one before? Yes, I've I've actually seen this a few times before, uh, and in fact the last time I watched it I came away from it thinking you know what this movie just isn't that great and then so that's kind of what i was expecting rewatching it for this and then i watched it and my i kind of i guess my my feeling at the moment is hey this is a pretty fun movie <laughs> you know it's a fun it has some really interesting imagery um it's not very creepy mm-hmm. right the, the characters are all kind of irritating for the most part so you don't really care if they get uh knocked off peter cushing is here it's sort of trying a german accent <laughs> just a little bit of an edge <laughs> there. uh but you know th- I'll tell you, have you ever seen the movie Zombie Lake, also about uh, Nazi zombies? Uh, Shockwaves is about a thousand times better than that movie. <laughs> and the makeup is better, too. Uh, it's it, It's got a neat setting. The zombies are appropriately odd and dead looking, mm-hmm. and they do provide a, a, a certain amount of menace. Um, and it's got that kind of trick ending as well, uh, if you're into that sort of thing. It's, it's a fun light horror movie kind of like a teenager type horror movie maybe even early teens kind of getting you into the genre it doesn't do anything particularly great but it's memorable especially because of the look of the zombies and i think it's one of those movies that when people saw it as a kid they have this memory in their brain that it's this incredible lost gem and then they lots of people they just like revisit it and it's like oh yeah oh no it's pretty good but it doesn't have that same oomph if you just catch it on TV in the middle of the day. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that that carries through the movie. Um, I mean, only only recently, and like in the last, what would I say, six, seven years, like managed to to kind of find its way into the digital media because it was one mm-hmm. of these ones that was thought lost. Um, and, you know, as now, it's now out, I think it's now out on Blu-ray. I think it's went as far as that. <laughs> I think you can buy it on Blu-ray now. Um, yeah, I'm with you on this one. I think... Um, I'd seen it a couple of times before. Uh, it made it made the list because I thought like the the fun aspect of it. It is kind of like there's something like kind of weirdly enjoyable about watching Peter Cushion in this one. It's like you see, mm. he's like you know you don't have to do the the kind of tinge of German in your accent. It's it's cool, you know. <laughs> like just look at Sean Connery. That man's made a career of sounded like Sean Connery and to be honest if people could speak as eloquently as you Peter Cushion you just stick with that um, <laughs> you know um, but it's, 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 a, it's a ton of fun the zombie makeup is, is kind of rad um, it's a bit dumb if we're being honest and <laughs> I, I think if the content didn't have Nazis like as the zombies I think you could probably get away with showing this to a younger audience you know you know, sure, comfortably, absolutely. I think um, that there wouldn't be any any issue with that one. So when you consider that the following year, um, Dawn of the Dead comes out and basically kind of sets out the template for every zombie movie ever. After after that point, um, it kind of feels like people are still trying to 
kind of find the footing on what a, a zombie movie is or what it kind of should be like or how it should work. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a completely inoffensive for a movie which is it's got Nazis. Um, it's completely inoffensive. It's a fun <laughs> ride. It's a dumb movie. Uh, no thought required. Uh, no assembly required with this this movie when it comes to mind constructs. Um, and it passes at a fairly quick pace. And, and yeah, it's done. I think that's that's all we need to say about Shockwaves. <laughs> I, I do, you know, I like, this is our second and final appearance of John Carradine on this yeah. list. And uh, I think he's a lot of fun in this, even though he doesn't last that long <laughs> into the movie. Um, but I like the idea. It's like we have a horror legend for the first 20 minutes and then you have a horror legend for the next 30 minutes. And then, you know, it's just, then it's the rest of the movie. So um, if you're a fan of kind of, horror movies of the 70s in general you should definitely check it out just don't expect that it's kind of some sort of lost classic yeah but very much so so let's look at the last appearance of uh, Robert Carradine on this uh, list um, and this would be Orca a movie that I'd only ever seen once oh that's right I forgot that he was in it and also not Robert Carradine John, John Carradine Car- Robert Carradine yeah. of course from Revenge of the Nerds I that would be Carradine. so many Carradines <laughs> Wasn't, oh no! Wait, yeah, no. Robert Carradine, yes, is an Orca. John Carradine is not. He's not. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't revisit Orca for this one because I'd seen it fairly recently, so he 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 slipped from my memory. <laughs> yeah, like Orca is one of these movies I'd seen once before, um, and whenever it's come up in conversation, where people have talked about like the great George ripoffs um, of the time. Uh, whenever Orca's mentioned, I'm like, yeah, Orca's a, you know, it's a lot of fun, but you know, it is what it is. So let's call a spade a spade on this one. Um, and I watched it like I watched it a couple of days ago, and Orca's a really fucking good movie. <laughs> For- it's so strange because you see people have this reaction to it. Like even when we said we were going to put it on this list, we had some people who were like, yeah, Orca, are you out of your mind? Or Orca's such a cheesy Jaws ripoff. And maybe it's just because. Maybe it's it's because of its label as a Jaws ripoff and because people uh, spent years and years watching it in this kind of cropped VHS version that didn't have the kind of the expanse of what you see in it. But I mean, if you didn't, if it was 10 years removed from Jaws as opposed to just a couple of years or, or yeah, just a couple yeah. of years in this case, it'd be easy to separate it from Jaws. It doesn't feel like yeah. just because it has a killer fish in it uh, or a killer mammal, I should say, uh, it doesn't it, it feels like it's telling more of a kind of a Moby Dick-ish story than it does, uh, a, a, you know, a, a terrorizing monster on the loose. Yeah, I think the thing about it is, I think a lot of people think about the kind of setup, and yes. you know, the setup is kind of it's, it's harrowing, but at the same time, it is kind of cheesy. And I think that's from that yes. point, people just dismiss what comes after. And I think that's like like a cardinal error here. Um, like director Michael Anderson had done Dam Busters, he did the 56 version of uh, 1984 did Logan's Run um, as a director so he was like a fairly well established director sure. um, and he's got a great cast here like we say Robert Carradine, Keenan Wynn Bo Derek, uh, Will Sampson, Charlotte Rampling, Richard Harris um, <laughs> I think the way it's I think the way it's kind of set up is I mean, we, can, we can give away the set up is that the the hunt, <laughs> like the well, yeah, the, ultimately the the kill an orca whale, um, and there is a line where the you're told that you know the they mate for life, like these orca whales mate for life, and not only do they they, they kill this orca inadvertently, um, but the orca is also pregnant, 
um, right. and the, the child, um, the, I don't know what you call it, like a calf maybe, that the, the sure. orca calf falls out on the, it's this harrowing scene, and the, the whale yeah. lets out this earpiece and scream at the beginning, and then literally just hunts him for the rest of the movie, and it's it's kind of fucking awesome, and I'll be honest with you, I'm with the whale all the way through this movie, I'm like, yeah, get right. every single fucking one of them, um, I, I, I just... And I, I don't know, like like I say in the past, like according to IMDb, there and surprise surprise, there was a run of of movies that got made off the back of the success of Jaws, right? Uh, because turns out Jaws was a big deal. It was the the beginning of the summer blockbuster movie that it was when it kicked off, and you know they obviously gave us three sequels: uh, Jaws two, Jaws three D, and. Jaws of Revenge, let's not talk about that. Um, and you got obviously Orca, uh, Piranha, which I, I love, um, yeah. Tentacles, Killerfish, Barracuda, uh, Great White, yeah. <laughs> Blood Beach, uh, Piranha Part 2, <laughs> The Last Shark, Up to the Deaths, um, Humanoids from the Deep, Screamers, Devouring Waters, Mako, <laughs> The Jaws of Death, uh, which, let's be honest, that one's a bit on the nose, just saying, a bit on the nose. <laughs> but yeah, so there's this whole string of them. And most of them are not that great. And Orca, to me, actually is one of these ones where someone is trying to obviously cash in, capitalise. Someone is basically trying to make money off the back of someone else's idea by putting a tiny little spin on it and repackaging it quickly to steal some of that, you know, that that, that nice kind of viewer cash out there that's rolling for people that have got a, you know, a taste for that Jaws action. Um, but it's handled so well that... It's, it's difficult to it's difficult to berate the movie as like a you know like a plagiarized kind of copy of someone else's hard work of like a Spielberg you know classic someone's tried to do their own thing. It's very difficult to do it because like I say, it's out with the kind of goofyish setup at the beginning. The rest of the movie is done really 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 well, and I'll give them this: they're uh, they're orcas. Uh, you see a lot more of the orca in this movie than you see of the, the shark and jaws, um, and the, the the kind of animatronics that are used are hundred hundred times better. And I've obviously, when I was reading a lot of things about here, some of this was filmed up near your neck of the woods. Now I have to talk about this. <laughs> now I, uh, of course, people who know me from other podcasts know that I grew up in Newfoundland, Canada, which is in the furthest eastern part of this entire continent. Um, and uh, they, Orca is one of the few movies that was filmed in Newfoundland. So even though it was filmed a few years before I was born, so it's it's one of those movies where everyone who I grew up around, like their parents or grandparents, they all had stories about the time Orca came to town, <laughs> and they they were an extra in Orca, that sort of thing. So it has that kind of extra um, significance to me, I suppose, simply because the surrounding footage, you know, all the all the footage that isn't filmed on some sort of giant tank um, is filmed in Newfoundland, in St. John's, Newfoundland, and and our surrounding areas. So for me, it's also, uh, I, 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 I can't disconnect myself from the fact that I have almost that kind of emotional connection to some of the scenery in the movie, <laughs> uh, simply because you don't see it that often. Um, and of course, when that's combined with uh, an Ennio Morricone score, uh, which is this is a great soundtrack to mm -hmm. Orca as well. Um, that that it I actually there are parts of this movie that that I have uh, an emotional reaction to 
that it's almost surprising how much of an emotional reaction I have to it. And whether it's because I have that connection to my home province oh, and also the fact that this movie is a lot more sympathetic to both the creature and also the people that are after the creature. You know, this is a movie that has an intelligence to it, even outside of the goofiness and a real heart that uh, that doesn't want to just condemn all of the characters on screen. That's why I think it it works on a different intellectual level than I would say almost every Jaws ripoff, if you can call it that. Um, I think it's safe to say that this movie wouldn't have been made if Jaws hadn't have been a, a big success. Yeah. But it's also it also kind of got it's almost like the artistry and the intelligent uh, uh, spin was was kind of snuck in on on the, on the the back of Jaws. <laughs> Uh, but it's one I think that that people should really revisit it. And you know, Richard Harris does his best go at a Newfoundland accent. Not everyone can swing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like very, very impressed actually. Just overall, it's, and it kind of makes me like it's weird. You know how like you see certain movies like Piranha's one that I always go back to. I love Piranha. I think it's, it's like a just a great little movie. And it kind of makes me wonder how many more of these kind of animals kind of nature run them up movies that's the beauty of listening to um the food chain jeff x's sure. new podcast is you get to hear a lot of people talk about a lot of movies that i know i've seen once <laughs> and never went back to because i have this kind of i unfairly lump a large portion of those movies to one side um and go about the rest of my day safe in the knowledge that if i'm looking for a cheesy movie it's, it's there um and then watching orca and realizing you're by God, it's that's a lot better than than I even give it credit for. So yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a bloody good pick, Doug. Turns out you know what you're talking about, which is well. I mean, we should mention Duncan that Orca really didn't initially make this list at all. Uh, oh, that's you might recall right. that this is that's this is right. the Martin because, replacement, isn't it? That's right. We were we we're going to pull back the curtains yeah. a little bit. That initially because. There's a lot of, of uh, material out there which lists George Romero's Martin as 1977 mm -hmm. um, and uh, that, that we had had that on this list. But then we had a discussion privately amongst some of the people who are involved in these programs about whether, you know, you, you should count the movie at, by its release date. And Martin, as far as we could find, wasn't released anywhere until 1978, yep. which is why it's on that list instead. So we had to, uh, at a very late date, uh, replace Martin and... <laughs> And we decided to go with Orca. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, Duncan, I think Orca is actually better than a few on this Oh, list. definitely. Definitely. I think, um, and you're right, you, as, soon as, that, as soon as that got mentioned, there were a couple of jeers in the in the group chat from people going, oh, uh, really? <laughs> silly. Yes. Silly movie, that. Um, no, I stand by <laughs> it. I think, it's, I think it's pretty fucking awesome. So, um, so yeah, let's, let's jump away from... Um, talking about uh, killer whales and um let's let's stick with that kind of canada theme that's running through it and uh let's talk about a movie that we have discussed um <laughs> when we did our very exhaustive um david cronenberg round table um and if memory serves you're not the biggest fan of this movie look i know it's an unpopular opinion <laughs> but uh <laughs> look there are I say that there are shivers people and there are rabid mm -hmm. people. I'm a shivers person. Lots of people are rabid people and that's fine. <laughs> it's great. You know, rabid is, it's a perfectly good movie. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's David Cronenberg and you know that I'm always going to support him in anything he does. Um, but I think it's, 
I don't think it's very entertaining. I just don't. And I think there's some interesting thematic things there, but everything that I like about Rabbit is done so much better in Shivers, even though it was done earlier. Yeah. And maybe I like the rougher edge to Shivers as well. And I love the kind of more explicit sexual aspect, which is hard to say considering how sex is treated in Rabbit or the sexual element of mm -hmm. Rabbit. I just, I just like Shivers so much more. And again, Maybe I need to separate those two in my mind, but the fact that he made them back, uh, you know, one after the other, it, it's difficult to separate them. Um, actually, he was fast company in between. Well, either way. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of feels like, um, so yeah, so I'd say there's got Marlon Chambers, Frank Moore, Joe Silver, um, Patricia Gage. Uh, synopsis is a young woman develops a case for human blood after undergoing an experimental plastic surgery and her victims turn into rabid bloodthirsty zombies who proceed to infect others which in turn creates a city-wide epidemic um, in the case of this one and I think I think what we discovered when we were talking about the, the Cronenberg movies on the round table was that you know it, it, Shivers was a surprising hit uh, it, you know, it, it did business, which I don't even think anyone, including David Cronenberg, really expected. And it kind of feels like sure. he wasn't maybe, and it's weird to think about him now in this light because he's such a bold director, but it almost kind of <laughs> feels like a step of insecurity to basically try and rehash some of the ideas he'd done before um, and, you know, and try and essentially, like, recapture a lot of what he'd already done instead of kind of pushing the boat out like he does with dip, you know movies certainly after Rabbit. it kind of feels like he's playing very safe here even with the subject matter being the way it is it doesn't feel like he's it's almost like he's not brave enough to like when you like check the brood out for example which is the movie that comes after Rabbit. um right the brood is on a different world compared to what happens mm -hmm. in Rabbit. although you know there are you know similar themes that carry through in a lot of cronenberg movies he you know he taps into something wholly raw on that movie and Rabbit just kind of feels i think to an extent even though i do enjoy the movie quite a bit I feel like it just kind of feels like Cronenberg's going through the motions. Right, I need to make another movie. Right, well, I know I can do this, so I'll, I'll do it again. And, you know, maybe if I make it a bit more gory, a bit more violent, um, maybe that's, yeah, maybe that, you know, that's maybe what people liked about the previous movie. Like, without understanding that, what they actually liked about Chivers was a lot of Cronenberg himself, the way he delivers this this idea of um, the corruption of yourself from inside out um, right. which you know very few directors can capture and uh, so Rabbit to me feels like a very like as a, it's weird to say that it feels like a safe movie but it does really feel sure. like a safe movie in the progression of Cronenberg because after Rabbit the gloves come off um, sure. And actually, I think Fast Company is seventy-eight. So after Fast Company, the gloves yeah, come off. Yeah, after Fast, <laughs> the racing gloves yeah. come off. <laughs> after he makes his racing movie because he likes cars, <laughs> um, you know, he does. He goes off and starts playing with all sorts of ideas and really becoming arguably one of the greatest directors um, around. I mean, like he's we've spoke about it ad nauseum. His back catalogue is tremendous, uh, and Rabbit just kind of feels like it's a safe movie. From from my perspective, it's not a really good movie, but you're right when you've when you've already kind of we've talked about Lynch, you know, when we're talking about Lynch. Lynch's follow up to you know Eraserhead is the Elephant Man. 
completely different movie. You know what I mean? Completely different environment. He got that job because he'd done really the weird things in a racer head, but you see a completely different style of storytelling, a lot more narratively pleasing, um, a, a, a way to really, with these actors and stuff, convey like real emotion and genuine heartbreak throughout that story. Um, Rabid to me just feels like these are the building blocks of how to make a movie. I'm going to just do them again and I'm just going to try and make them a bit louder. Um, and that's that's kind of what <laughs> I'm going to actually. I'm just going to push back a little bit on that because I want to be a little more sympathetic to Cronenberg. <laughs> I also don't want to make it look like we're dismissing it as if it's some terrible it's movie. A I think great it's a movie. good Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I really. I think let's let's give him the benefit of the doubt because Cronenberg certainly deserves it and say, well, maybe he didn't have the budget or the flexibility to explore some of these ideas when he was making Shiver. So, you know, once he had a, su- a successful movie like that, had the opportunity to explore them with a bit of a higher budget and a little more polished, then that's what he decided to do with Rabbit. My problem with it is that I like things a little dirtier and maybe a little more compromised because the the, the kind of griminess of shivers is something i really respond to i think that's fair i think that's fair and yeah we love you david cronenberg you know that we dedicated five and a half hours of our time talking about you um i've seen everything you've ever made so yeah so i think we're safe here doug i think he knows we love him uh so hopefully hopefully uh, I, I know how dedicated he is to his craft i'm fairly sure he's you know in my world he's listening to that podcast and he knows he knows um so talking about things that are grimy <laughs> a little bit a little bit creepy, a little bit under your skin. Um, we spoke about this guy in 1972. Uh, he did this little movie called The Last House on the Left. It was a fairly uncomfortable viewing experience. Um, it, it did have a level of goofiness, though, that neither one of us were overly enamoured with. Um, and I did see that you know he had another movie on this list. And then I also said during the 72 recording, oh, that's right, it's, it's when you're back, Doug, to do 77. It's The Hills Have Eyes. Directed by Wes Craven, starring John Steadman, Yanis Blythe, Virginia Vincent, Dee Wallace, uh, Michael Berryman, Brenda Mirinov. Uh, synopsis On the way to California, a family has the misfortune to have their car break down in an area close to the public and inhabited by violent savages ready to attack. Um, so, yeah, some of the factoids about this one are pretty cool. Um, so, the similarities to Texas Chainsaw Massacre were intentional, as Wes Craven was a huge fan of Toby Hooper's film. He considered his film as paying homage to it. Um, when originally submitted to the MPAA, the film was given an X rating, which would have uh, relegated it to the porno circuit and severely hurt the box office returns. Wes Craven cut the film enough to secure an R rating and the original director's cut is thought to be no longer in existence. Which makes me wonder, I got the arrow cut um, and I thought it was uncut, so maybe it's not. (laughs) Maybe I've just assumed it was. I think it's as uncut as could possibly exist i imagine that anything that was cut out is just gone yeah. forever because they say that because i mean anyone who's seen the hills have eyes knows that know that the ending is just very sudden yeah. right i mean it just kind of cuts to it and apparently there's footage that exists or existed of, of the family reuniting after that that just doesn't exist anymore mm. uh, of course that that's not the kind of thing that gets cut out for the purposes of a rating but it just shows that there's there's footage that was out there that that just doesn't uh, that yeah. can't be found uh, west craven's original title 
for the film was Blood Relations. Uh, producer Peter Locke, however, disliked the title. Numerous titles were then considered and the film tested best under the title The Hills Have Eyes, though Cronenberg himself initially disliked the title. Um, so yeah, I had I got the Arrow just put out a Blu-ray of this within the last year. So this was the perfect opportunity for me to to uh, break the seal on it, sit down and watch this movie, and talk about leaps and bounds in directing. You know, like this, like mm. when you you have done something which kind of sets a name for you, and then what your next project is going to be. I mean, The Hills Have Eyes is. I would say equally as exploitative in its subject matter um, at times as something like Last House on the Left without necessarily trying to better it and certainly going off in different directions but I, I, I think when you think of exploitation um, the, 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 the maybe they straddle the same pole while dealing with slightly different subjects um, but just overall like ability behind the camera um, an ability to weave a narrative. The Hills Have Eyes is a huge step up for Craven, and you can see why, as time goes by, the more money that is given to Craven, you know, the, the more he starts to really delve and experiment in different and different factors, which we said before makes him like a really interesting director to talk about because he never really mm -hmm. rested on any particular laurel for long. He, I mean, he did Nightmare on Elm Street, which was a huge hit, and then walked away from it. <laughs> He's like, right, that's me. I've done my, I've done my movie, you know, and and only came back to at the end of that series uh, because he had ideas he wanted to flesh out, which ultimately became Scream. So. You know, he's a, he's a sort of guy that just you get this impression that if he wanted to tell a story, he would tell that story. And once he told that story, that was him. Um, which is weird when you see The Hills Have Eyes too. But we'll not get onto that because um, we're talking about The Hills Have Eyes. Well, um, <laughs> talk to me about this one, Doug. Tell me a little bit about your well, experience with this movie. Well, I'm going to lose some credibility here, Duncan, because this is one of two movies on this list that I had never seen from start to finish. All the way through. This is just one. All the way through. Now, I'd seen certainly the, the some of the more notable sections of it. I was very aware of it. It's just one of those movies that I just never took the time to sit down and watch the whole mm -hmm. thing. So, I mean, this uh, – I, I mean, I understand its reputation. I understand um, what its, its significance is both in horror and in regards to Wes Craven's career. It's just one that I just didn't take the time until now. So what, what luck it was that <laughs> I got to do it for this list. Uh, it's a, it's really good, right? I mean, it's very it's it, it it's very derivative of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But the other movie that I kept thinking of when watching it was Deliberate. Yes, oh, yes. Uh, even though we had some question marks regarding regarding its its uh, being labeled as horror here, it's the same sort of idea. It's people completely unprepared for the uh, the territory and the environment that they find themselves in, and they ignore all the people trying to warn them away, and they just go ahead anyway to their own peril. Uh, and, and you know it's it for the it's it's very well done. It's very grimy. Yeah. I mean, I love that. You know, it does still feel very much like a drive-in style movie. Um, it's <laughs> it's it's very silly in a lot of ways too. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's a very goofy movie. I mean, it, it it instead of this kind of natural southern redneck environment that you get in Deliverance, or even the the Texas environment of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, which feels like it could just be beyond, you know, maybe a, a, a state down or a, a couple of cities down, then you might find a place like this just off the beaten path. Here, you're in the middle of this 
radioactive nuclear testing site where it has, you know, basically mutants <laughs> that have, have uh, raised in the desert, have they become like almost Mad Max-esque roving bands. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, there's there's an extra level of silliness here, but it's played really straight. You know, it doesn't have any of that humor that, that we had so much difficulty with when it comes to The Last House on the left. It's uh, because it's a family and a tight family unit, a nuclear family, if you yes. were, if you will, <laughs> uh, that, they, that when they start getting kind of picked off and you see the how distraught the surviving members get you know there's a real uh, emotional resonance to that as long as you connect with the family that father was a piece of shit <laughs> well, yeah it's just a little bit racist just an asshole to everybody so the fact that he got burned alive you know shame a real shame for him <laughs> but uh didn't connect to it but the rest of the family you know they seemed pretty nice even the mother um so so and especially because not everyone dies in a particularly brutal or uh, uh, explicitly violent way. You know, the, the fact that the mother gets shot and slowly bleeds out. I mean, there's a really kind of a sad element to that. Yeah. And, and 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 I think that that is the sort of thing that you still rarely see in horror, where they try to give you characters that you are meant to really care about. You kind of explicitly show their relationship. They make one bad decision and they have to pay with their lives or a lot of lives in this case. It, it's, a, it's not particularly scary. Um, and it's interesting that the the image from this movie that people seem to remember is Michael Berryman's face. Yeah. Considering that you know he's not even kind of posited as as sort of the lead baddie in this, he just has happens to have that very uh, recognizable uh, face because of his condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that you know it's a movie that is uh, very well made, shows a lot of talent, and it, it I guess I would pretty easily say that it's a great horror movie. I don't think that it's one of the greatest horror movies of this year. I would agree with that totally. I think. Um, I mean, I guess. So, sorry, just to say, just to be more explicit, what I mean by one of the greatest, I mean I don't think it's in the top two. I just don't think it's really, really on that level. Yeah, I think it merits definitely being in the top ten and for conversation, yes. and definitely as as a discussion point, not only to show where the kind of exploitation cinema was going towards the end of the seventies. Um, but specifically to chart that career jump of Craven, um, which is like really, like we say, that like the guy had a bit of a kind of mean, grimy streak when he started off, very much so, and it, it did it slowly, got chipped away at time, um, and maybe in some respects was replaced with a maybe a better understanding of how to do commercial horror. Um, but it's interesting that that you know this Hills Have Eyes does feel like. Not in maybe a purposeful, but like an attempt to take that griminess of the last house on the left and make it slightly more yeah. palatable for audiences. And you know, it, a lot of people took that and ran with it. I mean, there's so many movies in the wake of Last House on the Left that feels like it was trying to for a similar tone, but they never go quite as dark as that movie. Yeah, was. I think the only one that I could think of, and it came the came two years after, is a uh, Last Stop in the Night Train. Um, the yes. Aldo Lado movie, which I think, in a lot of respects, outdoes um, the horribleness of uh, uh, Last House on the Left, um, because that's what Italians tend to do. They're like, well, we'll just because I think it, it, Sp- it got called Last House on the Left too. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But speaking of Italians, there's also a real dead dog in in um, Bill's yes. Advice, which is for me as a dog lover, boy, that yeah. I I'm hate. The same as you. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, kind of. At least the dog, at least the other dog got its revenge. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so have you ever seen the second one from start to finish? 
I have not. <laughs> and of course, I know its reputation as well. It's just, it seems impossible to believe that the same man made that movie, which, you know, it's just like, well, even if he just basically remade this one, how bad could it be? But my understanding is that it's very, very yeah, bad. It's, it's totally very strange uh, when you have a whole section which is kind of told from the point of view of the dog, where you get dog vision in that movie, um, which is just un- unbelievable. But Craven was like that. I think that was the thing. Like, I think Craven genuinely thought at times um, he was a really funny guy. I think he probably was a really funny guy. I just don't think it always translated really well into in a movie <laughs> format. I think he meant that some of the interactions between the the mutant family in this were supposed to be, if not funny, then at least kind of satirical. Yeah. But uh, it, they really do come off as, as you know. I think that maybe actually adds to the 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 frightenness or the scariness of them yeah, as it's characters. Like an accidental, like kind of scariness that kind of goes over them because of that. Um, so yeah, so that is uh, the hills have eyes. So let's let's turn our attention to a guy that has appeared many, many times <laughs> in these 70s shows. This is his final movie that he ever directed. This is the late, great maestro Mario Bava. The movie is Shock, a.k.a. Beyond the Door 2. Now, I was saying to Doug off-air, I have been saying for years, I have never seen Shock. It's like one of the very few Bava movies from the, the kind of horror point of view. That I've never seen. There's plenty of his other works I have not seen, uh, whether it's some, you know, his, his Hercules movies and stuff that I, mm-hmm. I will get around to one day, um, as when I can locate really good prints of of those movies. But I I, I was thought that Shock was always this kind of this blip in my knowledge, and then I sat down to watch it, and 20 minutes into it, I realised I had seen it. <laughs> Which <laughs> happens all the fucking time. Um, so yeah, this is this was his final movie. Um, Shock it stars Daria Nicolodi, John Steiner, David Collins Jr., and Ivan Razumov. Um, was really interesting about this one, and I don't know if I knew this or if this is actually right. Um, but according to IMDb, though this was his last film. It was not the last film of his that was to be released. Right. Honor Lies with Rabid Dogs, which was released in '98. Yeah, they, they, it was thought lost, right? And then they—I uh, think it's only in recent years where it's even be, become viewable in like a, a quality. Yeah, print. I've got the because uh, you know they, they remade they remade Rabid Dogs just a couple of years. Yeah, ago. I've got the I've got the Arrow uh, Blu-ray, which sadly has ne- never been opened. It still it still lies in its um, its cellophane. Um, but I thought. So there you go. I didn't realise it was the nineties that had been released. I remember the stories about it being kind of thought lost and stuff. But I, for some reason, I just had it in the back of my head. It was the eighties that had been released. I didn't realise it was as late as that. Um, and talk about like I mean, how I, films are churned out in a system. Like Italy had right. like the finest system for churning movies out. Uh, the film was actually shot mostly in June of seventy-seven and released in August of seventy-seven, <laughs> which is fucking nuts. Um, so the film was released in the USA as Beyond the Door 2 although it has no connection with Beyond the Door released in 1974 Um, the synopsis, a couple is terrorised in their new house haunted by a vengeful ghost of the woman's former husband who possesses her young son Um, this this movie like I put on here because I thought I'd never seen it before, so I was like, finally I Mm -hmm. give myself an excuse, it's a Bava movie so there's a a recognisable level of quality that you're going to walk into in this movie and what I realised watching this movie is at times it doesn't feel 
much like a Bava movie at all. And I think you filled the gap in here with a bit of a bit of a factoid that I didn't know, which was Lamberto Bava helped with some of the filming of this. And that may mm. explain some of the inconsistencies because the uh, Lamberto Bava movies certainly have a different feel fr- from his father's um, his work. I mean, I thought it was I thought it was interesting. You can see that on a lot of levels. Whilst I still thought it was a really interesting story, it's interesting to see him take on on this subject matter, moving away from the kind of moving into the spirit world, so to speak, kind of away from the the violence of, you know, the, the Jali and, and what he had started there and moving back to this, the, the only other ghost movie that I could think of properly off the top of my head that, that um, you know, he was involved with if you're moving away from something like uh, Black Sunday or, you know, Black Sabbath was something like The Whip in the Body, which I love. I think The Whip in the Body is a fucking incredible movie. But to see him come back and do this sort of thing, I mean, The Whip in the Body has, like, you know, has this really sexual deviant element about it which is which makes it fucking awesome in my book um <laughs> to see him do this movie i don't i thought it was interesting i wouldn't say that i loved the movie um which pains me to say that i thought it was i thought it was a good movie but by bava standards it's probably one of the lesser bava titles uh, do you agree with that or are you are you going to correct me and tell me where I'm wrong? <laughs> I think I like it a little more than mm-hmm. you, though I still agree with just about everything you say. I feel like more than a lot of Italian movies of this time period, the dubbing in the U.S. version of Shock is particularly yeah. bad. Uh, and because one of the lead characters is a little boy, um, it can't help but uh, bring back memories of Bob. Bob. Uh, fucking Bob. <laughs> Fuck though, Bob. Though Marco, Marco is no Bob. Marco is a different animal. And though this kid is irritating in its own in his own right, I do like the psychosexual aspect of shock and the kind of incestual aspect just because it's so different than what you normally see in movies of this time period i also kind of like the twist actually i like the whole final half hour i like it kind of start to finish because um things just go crazy right all the stuff that's kind of implied it's like okay this is happening there is a ghost your kid is possessed now shit's gonna go down and there's lots of great Moments. My favorite being the one where the little kid runs down the hallway towards his mother and then the full grown um, zombie version of her ex-husband jumps up at her. Just a classic moment in horror that you kind of see. I sometimes see that as an animated gif and maybe removed from the context of the movie. It can be a little bit silly looking, (laughs) but that's another issue that this movie has. There are moments in this that are I think are as terrifying and as uh, well executed as any moments in Baba's Mm -hmm. career. And there are other moments that are completely ludicrous and completely destroy the tone of what is a very serious movie, right? I mean, it's not – there's really no humor in it at all for the most part. Uh, Though I will say that even in some of those ridiculous moments, I found them very entertaining, specifically the the almost plane crash that occurs (laughs) about halfway through, which is done in sort of voodoo doll style with a picture – of uh, of the new husband of Dario Nicolotti's character, where the now uh, Marco, the child, has attached it to a swing and is pushing it back and forth, which is apparently having the effect of almost crashing an airplane. And it's uh, it's very ridiculous, but actually pretty fun <laughs> as well. It's I think you still have to see it if you're a Baba fan. I mean, you just do. Yeah. Um, and and I do think that there are really amazing moments. It is not. It's certainly not as colorful as the kind of Bava style that you would expect. Um, this is a much more down and dirty horror, even though it has a very small cast. 
Um, but it, it is very worthwhile. I think Daria Nicolodi is, re is really, really good in yes. it. Though it's really, I, I do think that she's sometimes underdone by the dubbing, but I think overall, you know, she's playing a character that's supposed to be um, on edge right from the beginning. And things are just like rapidly hitting her and making her kind of go downhill faster and faster and faster. But there's, there's, I think there's a real um, sincerity to this dis this display of paranoia that happens uh, in the halfway mark, where people are trying to protect her and she's trying to find answers. And I think there's, there's, there's really something uh, well done about that. It's just that she when she, it, it, she comes down to the last half hour and she's basically just screaming constantly because <laughs> horrific things are happening to her. Um, I, I, again, I really love all of that stuff, but it's also, I mean, it's kind of overwhelming. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's unlike a lot of Italian horror this time where it's kind of got this mystery element, though it does have a twist at the end, it's not really about that twist. It's about a lot of kind of horror imagery that occurs. Some of it works really well, some of it not so much. I, th I think it's a really good movie in a lot of ways and other ways it's 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 disappointing, like you said. Yeah, yeah I think um, it'd be interesting. It's one of those ones that I, I always, always kind of keep flirting with the idea of kind of running the train and just going through all the Baba releases in order. Um, and I well, I mean, us, you know, do we got to get Jeff X Martin on board? We got another three to go we through. We do, we do indeed. Yeah, never, you know, never, never ends. These never end, dude. They never end. <laughs> um, and uh, what is the Italian fascination with walling people up <laughs> in their houses? <laughs> I mean, this is something that comes. I mean, it came up in our last recording. It comes up multiple times in this one. They just, they just are really fascinated with the idea of corpses just walled up in someone's it house. Makes you wonder if you want to buy a house in Italy. <laughs> just saying may, might not want to redecorate um, so Daria Nicolodi obviously it's really interesting seeing her in that movie being directed by a different director as well um, but you know she she was involved um, to to a great degree with another movie from this year in fact she's the catalyst for the story behind this movie being made she, she essentially developed the story along with her partner um, at, at the time, a, a guy called Argento, Dario, who may, may have heard him before, has appeared several times on the 70 list um, and marked the first like decisive move in horror away from Jallo. Now, he had already made a move, uh, Five Nights in Milan, which is, I've never seen it, I've heard it, it's not very good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he moved in that direction and then came back to doing, you know, he came back and did Deep Red, <clears throat> incredible movie, um, and then decided to leave Giallo once more and uh, do this little supernatural movie called Suspiria. Um, and in doing this movie, um, terrified a generation um, and beyond. I still actually think this movie at times is. It's so overwhelmingly, like, psychologically visceral. Um, it, like, certain scenes still just put me on edge. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about this one. So, Suspiria is mm -hmm. arguably one of the heavy hitters on this list. Uh, stars Absolutely. Jessica Harper, Stefania Kasny, uh, Flavio Bucci, uh, Udo Kier, with the worst <laughs> accent ever. 
um, just saying. Um, synopsis for this one, a newcomer to a fancy ballet academy gradually comes to realise that the school is a front for something far more sinister and supernatural amidst a series of grisly murders. Uh, some of the factoids in this one, Jessica Harper's lead performance, being picked as the lead, came out of her debut performance in Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, a movie which I love. Um, uh, Argento was inspired to make the film by stories of Daria Nicolodi's grandmother who claimed to have fled from Germany's music academy because witchcraft was being secretly practiced there. Um, he, Argento that is, gave his cinematographer Lucio Trovi uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from 1937 uh, to have him model the colour scheme to the film of this one, uh, which makes a lot of sense because you see a lot of side-by-side -side comparisons that come up. Uh, of Jessica Harper and Snow White in certain scenes and it's scary how on point the colour scheme is. Um, Argento composed the creepy music with the band Goblin having it played full blast on the set uh, to unnerve the actors and elicit some truly scared performances. And the last thing which I think is probably one of the greatest factoids of all time, the woman that plays <laughs> Helena Marcos is not credited and according to Jessica Harper she was a 90 year old ex-hooker who director Dario Argento found on the streets of Rome because <laughs> sometimes you just go with what you see <laughs> you're creepy, be in my movie please um, so uh, yeah this is and it'll be interesting because like, on our offline discussion we we were talking about this and you you said that you do have certain issues that you want to raise specifically about Suspiria but I've said it many times before if I was doing a, a top five horror movies of all time Suspiria is in that top five I think it's I think it's nothing short of absolutely incredible um, I think it's one of those movies that on paper shouldn't work it's kind of like lightning in a bottle um, I think Argento himself the reason and depends which which way you bend on this one. I think Inferno, the 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 sequel. I love Inferno. It obviously loses a lot of the narrative that Suspiria loosely has um, uh, to to develop something far more kind of dream based. Um, and you know uh, the the Mother of Tears, the, the final movie coming many many years <laughs> later, is a wildly inconsistent movie, which I still actually have a lot of time for. I'm an Argento apologist that way. Um, <laughs> but there there's something just there's something you, know, you just don't see movies like this. When we were talking about a Razorhead just occupying a space which people just don't go usually when they go and see a movie. Suspiria is like that as well. Not not saying that it's, you know, of the same sort of um, direction as something like Eraserhead, but it's a very visual movie. And that in itself sounds mm -hmm. stupid because all movies are visual, but it thrives on <laughs> the, the visuals. Everything you see is a feast for the eyes in this movie. It's bold. Um, it's in your face. Uh, the movie at times is very loud and very aggressive um, and, and doesn't really, it's like being trapped inside a nightmare um, and trying to unravel the mystery using dream logic. Um, I, think it, I think it's wonderful. I, I have, I've have had the opportunity to speak about Suspiria on different shows. Um, it appeared on Chronicle Season 2. I, I dedicated a bit of time talking about my love for it. But I, I think it is... If Argento is remembered, 
you know, for, for doing one movie above all others, while Suspiria is not my favourite Argento movie, um, if I could put one in a time capsule to send somewhere, Suspiria would be the movie that I, I would do that with, because um, I think mm. it's hugely important, and when you hear of the impact, when you hear John Carpenter speak about Suspiria, it blew his fucking mind, um, it terrified him, absolutely terrified him, he'd never seen anything like it before. Um, I don't think anyone had. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't think, like I say, Argento did Inferno, which I'd like to say I, is a movie that I love as well. I think it's, I think it's fucking great. Um, but I don't think even he really knew how he did it, um, and that's not a bad thing. I don't think. I think it would have cheapened the movie had Inferno been just like another Suspiria. I think Suspiria being its own thing. Um, and existing in its own weird space and time um, makes it just incredible. I think, yeah, before you even start talking about the Goblin score, which is, to me, exactly the, is the one of these great examples, alongside people like Carpenter, where a score is almost more scary than the movie. <laughs> like, sure. Um, and it, it elevates scenes where there's not a lot happening. It puts you on edge. Um, just, I think it's, I think it's incredible. Um, please tell me that you like this movie, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, no, I love it. I do, and 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 it, when I think of 1977 and horror, Suspiria is the first movie that yeah. I think of. Um, it is not my favorite Dario Argento movie. I think Deep Red is a better movie in a lot of different mm -hmm. ways, but I think Suspiria it changed the tools that horror filmmakers had. Yeah. Right? It 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 for. A lot of them who had never even really experienced Gialli or a lot of a different Italian filmmakers, this one broke through in a way that those other movies didn't. So for a lot of American filmmakers, this was their first experience, right? I mean, outside of maybe the Bava films of the late 60s, which got more of a wider release, this this is, this is a new, uh, more explicit, more overwhelming in terms of visual and audio than, than anyone had really experienced at that time, uh, for the most mm -hmm. part. And so you can see how the directors, especially the horror directors at the time, they would see it and be like, this is, this is, you know, it's mammoth, it's colossal, it changes everything. And I also find it interesting that when people are going to get into Italian horror, if they're going to get into Dario Argento as a filmmaker, they usually start with Suspiria. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, to me, it's like, and so they're kind of experiencing that same sort of thing. It's so different. It still feels really different, even if there have been a lot of filmmakers since then who tried to imitate it, a very kind of explicitly imitate it. Um, that said, I feel like in some ways, it's a little overrated, uh, simply because it, it, it has the same limitations of a lot of movies of that time period, of a lot of Argento's movies. It's it's as comprehensible as he ever is, mm -hmm. right? Right, and, and I think Deep Red is probably the peak uh, uh, script that he ever worked on. But you know, here it all holds together, and it gets even though it's very dreamlike. It, it makes sense in a way that Inferno never does. But Inferno, in some ways, is a, is a bit more satisfying because once you realize it doesn't make sense, yeah. then you can just give into it and give into the visuals. Here, because it has a plot that it has to hold things together, it 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 me it makes some of the elements more ridiculous because of some of the dubbing issues, as you mentioned, with Odo Care in particular is. is uh, bad. The fact that it was originally written for the uh, the women at the ba the ballet school to be younger, yeah. and some of that dialogue seems to remain, so they're all very childlike. 
Some people may say that that kind of emphasizes the the kind of fantasy fairy tale aspect of it, but I also think it comes off as a little clunky mm-hmm. at times, especially that uh, I heard people whose names start with S are snakes or the name of snake, you know, that that, that sort of stuff. Um, and also the narrator at the very beginning, Susie Banyan decided to perfect her ballet study. You know, it, there's there's stuff in here that, that feels uh, like it doesn't fit because it, maybe it's because of the, the English dub, maybe it's because of concessions being made to a more international audience. Uh, but the, the good of Suspiria, those visuals, particularly the opening scene, which is, you know, everyone uh, points to it as kind of like this 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 announcement of this talent, even though, of course, Argento had already made some great movies leading up to this, including what I consider his best. But like that opening scene is such a, you know, blaring neon sign of this is an incredibly talented person who has a grip on filmmaking um, that that few other people do that it, it it's really you can't say enough good about it. Uh, I think that the plot elements of it, they kind of go up and down at times, but everything that I find is a limitation gets kind of balanced out by something that is incredible. Whether it be the lighting, whether it be the music, whether it be even the performances. I think uh, uh, Jessica Harper is is terrific mm-hmm. in this. I mean, she really is really good. And you sometimes, you know, sometimes these lead performances in movies like this, they kind of fall be fall to the side or they're just not not considered as important but she's really good so it's a movie that is a must see it's completely great i feel like it has some limitations and it's not my favorite argento if i was going to pick one of his movies from the 70s yeah deep red is number one for me but you know suspiria is number two and it's 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 just because I'm able to voice some of my criticisms with it, it's only because I love it so much. Yeah. You know, it's a movie I've seen so many times that I'm able to, uh, to to see that it's not perfect. But then again, what movie's perfect? Suspiria is um, is so different than any of the other movies on this list, and really so different than the movies that came afterwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, people didn't catch up to this visual style. I mean, even now when people try to ape it, it comes off as really hackneyed because there's only one guy who really could capture that lightning in the bottle and even he can't even yeah, do it. Yeah, he could never he could never do it again. It's it's the weirdest thing. It's like this this project that you work on that, that comes out and you and on a lot of levels redefines how people look at you as a director and then you never are able to really do that again. Um, also has one of my favourite taglines of all time uh, the, the only thing more terrifying than the last 12 minutes of this film are the first 80 <laughs> you're just like oh and I'll tell you what I love about it as well is like Suspiria feels like the ultimate roller coaster ride you know it starts off with yeah. this big bang and you go through all these different kind of peaks and kind of see at the very end of this movie where it's like you have watched Suspiria like that appears on the screen that is the ultimate end of a roller coaster ride you've exp- you survived yeah, the ride I think it's I think it's just great. I think it's just great. Um, so let's let's talk about another <laughs> Italian director mm-hmm. who has also appeared a few times on this list. Um, and the last time we spoke about him, we lavished praise. Not only did we lavish praise, we put his movie through, and we were all about "Don't Torture a Duckling." We were like, "This guy, right? This guy, this guy right here. Look at him." I don't like where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> this guy was Lucio Fulci. Um, he comes back. He uh, he's done a few jelly um, in the time period in between, and he is on the precipice of about seeing 
um, a little movie called Dawn of the Dead, which was recut by Argento in, in Italy and released as Zombie, um, and will ultimately go off and become the gruesome, gory, zombie, maggot guy um, moving forward. But this before he started doing his overtly sleazy, exploitative jallies of the 80s would be his last proper jally of the of the, the 90, well last of the heavy hitters um, of the 1970s. This is Lucio Fulci's The Psychic, um, which stars Jennifer O'Neill, Gabrielle Frezzi, Mark Porelli, um, Gianni Garco and Idia Galli. Um, synopsis for this one, a clairvoyant woman inspired by a vision smashes open a section of the wall, <laughs> funnily enough, um, in her husband's home and finds a skeleton behind it, always between the walls. Uh, along with her psychiatrist, she seeks to find the truth about who the person was and who put her there. Soon enough, she'll start to realise the possibility that she may share the same fate as the victim. Right. Do you want to kick off? I'll I'll get I'll allow you first word on this one. Uh, FYI, I oh. really like this movie. Before we, oh okay, right. I, I was getting the impression from what you were saying that you were you were positioning this as the other side of Don't Torture a Duckling. It's like we talked about this as being great, and now we have the psychic, which I'm going to refer to as Seven Notes in Black because it's a much poor. It's title. such a <laughs> such a better such a better name, and it does it gives it as standing as a as a jelly. Um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the floor is Because there's a mystery. There's a mystery on, you know, that, that's taking place throughout this movie. And I love that. that honestly, I, I love that original title because it has that mysterious element. It sounds very much like a jelly. But the problem with the title, The Psychic, is that in some ways it's a bit of a spoiler, mm-hmm. right? It kind of gives away the big twist in the movie, which is that uh, the scenes that this woman is seeing in her mind that she thinks are things that have already occurred are actually things that are going to happen. And, you know, you're not really supposed to know that until it's revealed in the movie. But, you know, a psychic, that's what they see. They see things that are going to take place in the future. Um, I love, but though I do have to say, I love that poster for the oh, psychic, yes. I, that skeleton. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an amazing image. Uh, I had only ever seen the final half hour of the psychic before. Oh, right. This is the other movie on the list that I had not seen start to finish. And I'd always understood that people consider this to be a lesser Fulci movie. Uh, like, it doesn't get really mentioned with the great jolly of the time period, and for him, you know, because it's in his transitional period, that it doesn't, I don't think it gets a lot of play. I think it's great. I think it's really, really good. Like, I mean, I, I think it, it, for one thing, it actually, considering there's a supernatural element to it, it all makes sense, mm-hmm. which, that's rare. And I mean, the even in Fulci's movies, they don't always make sense. But this one holds together terrifically. And I, I like all the performances. I think Jennifer O'Neill is very good in this. I like the, uh, the, the suspicion cast on her husband and how all of that works together. Uh, I like the, the, the fact that there's almost like a police procedural aspect to it where they're kind of getting more information. It's like, well, he didn't have a mustache or he had a mustache, that sort of thing. Uh, it, it, I, I find it to be an incredibly entertaining, uh, visually interesting movie. Uh, and when I was watching it, I was very intrigued to see, even because even though I had seen the ending before, which is really the part that I shouldn't have seen <laughs> since, it, since everything is kind of leading up to it, I still found myself very involved and intrigued where how everything was going to fit together. It's it's a great jelly, right? It's a great movie. And it's, uh, and it's again, it's just more proof on the pile of proof we already have that Fulci is more than just Mr. Maggot, right? I mean, he had that ability to make really 
strong mystery style horror movies that uh, that that had plots that were comprehensible, that had strong performances, that had strong visual and uh, and uh, musical elements in them. Uh, that's the other thing about this movie, by the way. It has that made musical theme that Tarantino swiped mm-hmm. for uh, Kill Bill. That that is very creepy and very memorable, and you can see why it's stuck in his mind. So I mean, this is. This is just a, you know, I don't think it's as good as Don't Torture a Duckling, but it's a great, great movie and one that I think deserves some reevaluation. Yeah, I think this one lies below Don't Torture a Duckling, but certainly above A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Um, yeah. I think it's like when he, he comes off doing, um, you know, we've spoken about them before. We, we had a great episode where we discussed the early uh, to Jally. Um, and I think technically this qualifies as his fourth or fifth. Um, overall Jally and like I say after this he goes off and starts experimenting um, with you know zombie flesh eaters and then through to a city of the living dead and beyond and you know house by the cemetery where we get Bob Bob Um, Bob. (laughs) Um, but yeah I think I think there's what, what surprises me about this one is the lack of gore in this movie and that's like it, it kind of feels like Fulci is winding down to an extent. I mean, this is less gory than something along the lines of Don't Torture a Duckling, which has quite a bit more gore in it in comparison to this yeah. one. And it kind of feels mm-hmm. like a proper suspenseful mystery that he's crafting here, which like you, you don't instantly think of when the name Fulci comes up. And Absolutely. It, it proves like the many strings to the bow of his filmmaking prowess as a director, I think, I think Fulci is an infinitely fascinating director that I get more out of the longer I spend watching his earlier stuff. The the more time you start delving into some of the earlier works of Fulci, it starts to become really quite interesting to see just the variety of projects he was involved with. Um, and just the different things he would do as a director. Um, I think that the psychic, or as it's known, you know, Murder to the Tune of Seven Black Notes, um, it's, it to me shows a director who was still taking on projects that were of interest to him before he found something that would really, you know, catapult his name into you know a, a different level and he would almost get typecast as a director um, from that point onwards um, so yeah what whilst I was saying like, maybe I did actually I think about it now lead you to believe that I didn't like this movie in the setup it's what you call a bad transition Doug uh, in the industry that's what <laughs> a bad segue um, yeah I, I have a whole hell of a lot of time for, for the psychic I think it is one of those ones which is much maligned because of where Fulci goes right after and where Fulci had been before I think sometimes it's very easy to to recognise that within two years he would go off and become a guy who would have several movies on the video nasty list um, in the yeah. UK and become synonymous with a kind of sleazier, grimier style of filmmaking specifically in the 80s where he took this really nasty turn you look at movies like the New York Ripper, which are just, you know, kind of feels like it should be made in the seventies. Um, you know, yeah. as 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 weird. There's a there's a good use of reserve and restraint, which I think benefits this movie. I think the, the balancing act is not easy 
in this one and had they made it a bit too gory it might not have the same impact but yeah i think i think it's a great movie um it also makes a great bookend with uh, don't torture a duckling because someone falls off a cliff at the beginning of this movie yes. while they fell off a cliff at the end of that yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> better fall off the cliff in this movie though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a better one. Um, a lot less sparks coming off the face when you know your face is smacking rocks. Uh, <laughs> so by my reckoning I think we only have one movie left to talk about sir. Um, that is yeah, now this movie, <laughs> I guarantee not everyone that is listening has seen this movie and I would encourage everyone to go and see this movie. Because of all the movies, this is the one I was most excited to talk about because I have never really out with Hero Hero Ghost Show, uh, Bo Ranstall's um, Asian uh, only exclusive um, podcast. I've heard very few people talk about How Sue, aka House. Uh, from 1977, directed by No Bunahu or Bunaku. Uh, How about Nobuhiku? That, that, see, this is why you are here. Um, Obayashi. And um, the synopsis for this one: a school, a school girl and her <laughs> six of her classmates travel to her aunt's country home, which tries to devour the girls in bizarre ways. That's as good as any. Synopsis, I suppose. Um, so let's do the factoids and let's let's get in about this movie. The film was commissioned by Toho Studios in reaction to the success of foreign horror films like Jaws uh, and, and designed. So this is this is another Jaws ripoff. It must be and designed to be a domestic reflection of the successful Western films of the genre. The script was part, partly inspired by the frights described to the director by his then preteen daughter. And according to the director, this was the first Japanese film to use video effects, which he applied in the scenes to make one of the girls dissolve uh, underwater through a low fidelity video, which is a simple chroma effect, apparently. I didn't know that. Um, And it was the director's first feature-length debut before directing House. He directed commercials for Japanese television. Now, I will say that had I said to you after watching this movie, oh, this director used to do Japanese commercials. <laughs> I think anyone would be like, of course he did. Of course he fucking... Anyone that's seen any Japanese commercials, of course this guy did commercials. Because at times, it feels like surreal one-off slabs, set pieces from commercials, pieced together. But that does a disservice to the overall movie, which I genuinely think is... We're talking about unique experiences, and this de- this particular year and this decade provides a Suspiria, which you know defies, um, you know, the ability of the director at the time. No one thought he had it in him, and, and goes on to kind of really defy the genre. Um, Eraserhead, which is almost uncategorizable, um, and then you have Houseu, which is a movie unlike any movie that I've ever seen. I've never seen a movie like this before and I've watched a lot of uh, Asian cinema. Household kind of stands completely different and apart from all the other ones and we joked, um, I think it was offline, that this is a movie that I was only familiar about circa 2010-2011 when Criterion put Mm -hmm. out. I'm like, why the... like, when Criterion announced a title and I've not heard of it, uh, that generally is a sign for me to start paying interest to it. Um, Particularly when it's a genre title, because they don't release a lot of genre movies. Like yeah, this. of course. So when it was announced, I was like, I need to, I need to see what this is all about. 
And I've seen this movie a couple of times and it, is, it, it continues to defy explanation overall for me uh, with I just think it is a wholly unique and fantastic little slice of art house horror maybe I don't know how you I don't know how you <laughs> categorise it and I don't think it should be categorised it certainly is a horror movie um, but to call it purely a horror movie I think is a disservice to everything that's happening in it talk to us about how Sue Doug well what I love about it is that it gives me faith that they're are movies out there that none of us have heard of that are not only good but like representative of some of the best and most interesting and most original that existed in that decade right it means that there's always the potential for a uh the film scene in a country that you might not think of of having this hidden gem you know this wasn't a hidden movie in japan people saw it it was a success in the late 70s there somehow that that success and that awareness of this movie it just never reached the west and and that's that's in some ways um, reflective of the the attitudes of that time, but it's also great in some ways for us now because there's always the potential for a movie like this to pop up, and that's what makes it so fun to be a fan of horror movies because when they pop up, there's a lot of excitement around them, and there was a lot of excitement when people were discovering this, and they were like, "Have you seen Houseu? Have you seen this movie? It's fucking crazy," and it is. This movie lives up to every kind of hyperbole you can have in regards to how batshit it is but what's great about it is that the batshit isn't just randomness it was explicitly planned all of it you're right because everything is based around these kind of strange visual effects and uh odd tangents but this was put together very explicitly to the point where there i think there was a um a manga about the movie before the movie That's came it, out yeah. that that they use as basically a basis for it because this concept had been floating around for a little while and in some ways it's kind of such a explicitly comedic setup right with these with these young women who all have kind of different personalities and they're they're all named off of, off of their personalities mm-hmm. so one of them is a nerd and one of them is super strong one of them eats all the time and and it's set up to be almost a scooby-doo-ish as they get to this location and then the gloves come off and then it becomes ex- extremely violent <laughs> and extremely strange and there's um, you know, uh, disembodied heads floating around, and there's a, a watermelon in a well. I mean, there's just so much wacky stuff here, and it's all intentional, and it's all so original. Look, the the fact is, I know it's only been a few years, you know, comparative to when it was released that this movie started to get a reputation, uh, uh, you know, outside of Japan. But this should be houses should be spoken of in the same company as Suspiria, right? I mean, this is a movie that is just as original visually, if, if in some ways more so because it's it's taking the language of film and it's matching it with the the kind of visual tricks of of advertising and doing something completely original with it, and also on a you know comparatively lower budget to a lot of the features that even we were talking about on this list. So then it's going out and doing something so different, so strange. And so original, and I mean, it's 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 really something everyone needs to see. Not everyone's going to connect with it, and it's not necessarily going to connect with you on an emotional level. And there probably isn't a lot of scares that'll take place, though there are very unnerving aspects to Asu for sure. Uh, but what it when I finished watching it recently, my first thought was, why is there not a hundred other movies like yeah. this? Right. Movies that not not exactly like not copying like the plot or anything like that, but that took the idea of just taking the restraints off of the visuals, just doing whatever you wanted to do within the the realm of the, the budget you have and the and the technical capabilities and just going wild with it. And it makes 
other movies seem so stodgy and plain in comparison. Uh, it, 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 other movies, even the movies that you really love, seem boring compared to House. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's. I think that you you are right. I think the 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 thing about this movie is I don't think it's an easy sell to 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 people. Mm. I think you really have to just like approach it with this really open mind and just understand that. Uh, you know that this director is crafting like he 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 was doing all these like these commercials he's went on to do like 56 movies he's still making movies yeah, movies. at the yeah. moment um but he was quirky he was young um in a lot of respects if you see any of the promotional shots we get to see during the documentary which was out on the the criterion disc He's mm-hmm. he's this kind of weird hippie looking dude, um, <laughs> kind of like a bit a bit like a rock star. And this is a movie which it was delayed its release. So like you see, the the manga came out and then it was connected to I don't want to say it was connected to fast food as well. Like you could the, the the kind of orange cat thing. You could start buying those images were everywhere before the movie even came out. So this is like this is like viral marketing before that sort of thing was even thought about where like people are already like the, the youth are already so aware of the product before you know before the internet or anything before it arrives it's there it's in the it's in the terminology it's in the language it's in the mm-hmm. culture before the movie drops which is insane you know what i mean and then the movie finally comes out and it, it blows people's minds um and like you see it does it, it, it it's exciting to think that there is a whole treasure trove of movies out there in different parts of the world which, you know, will slowly find their way out. And I was like I was a big fan of um you know of, of Japanese horror cinema in particular. Sure. Um I have spoken about it in the past before, especially on the Hero Hero Go show, that um I remember seeing Kuroneko like at like mm-hmm. in my teens, <laughs> like and thinking it was like incredible, uh, on a Kaba, um, and a like so many that I struggle and you know when and when I got into when I saw Ringu for the first time in audition, like out about the time that these movies were being re, kind of re released and thinking there must have been this sure. huge drop off between Japanese horror cinema in the sixties. And then, you know, they finally managed to recapture it in the, you know, the, the, the late 90s, early 2000s, not knowing that they had set a brand new precedent in the late 70s. Um, I think it's, it's it's wholly fascinating. It's a movie that is unlike anything you'll see. I think that's what makes it just, like, amazing is that it's unlike... And some of the scenes are genuinely kind of creepy bonkers and I think I sure. kind of love that about it as well as like I imagine putting myself in the mindset of someone going to see this movie in 77 and just having their face completely melted by how insane what the things are not, not, not necessarily like truly horrific images but just not having a clue what was going to happen next like at all you, you just can't predict the movie I and mean, it's pretty amazing um, and very very much worthy of discussion and part of this list um, mm-hmm. anything else you want to say about it before we uh, take our break and come back to to whittle the movies down I mean I think that it's one of those movies that the the, the less you know about it going in the better mm-hmm. however someone could talk about it all day and you still wouldn't <laughs> expect what you're going to get when you see it 
yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair, <laughs> fair statement. So, we have discussed Suspiria, Hausu, Orca, we did Eraserhead, The Hills Have Eyes, The Sentinel, Shockwaves, Shock, The Psychic, and Rabid. Myself and Doug are going to take a break. You're going to promos for shows that I love. You're going to hear a little bit of music to break up the segments. When we return, ten movies will become two as we... Uh, we bring to a close this year of 1977 on the top 10 horror movies of the 1970s. Brought to you as part of the Summer Teapot's Top 10. We're going to be right back to do that right after this. This is a distress call from across time and space. I am Babs the automated biological support system for the humanoid known as the Witch. Witch vs the Doomsday Clock is the weekly chronicle of his fight for survival and entertainment on the junk heap of the future. Episodes are transmitted in 15 minute pulses across the dimensional divide weekly for your listening pleasure. As you will learn, the future is not set in stone, and a flux capacitor is a girl's best friend. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and on your Android device. Come join the rest of the Meat Popsicles in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash witchvs the doomsday clock. The replicant known as witch can be found on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr and Instagram by searching for T-H-E-W-Y-C-H. The Witch vs. the Doomsday Clock is a proud member of the Legion Podcast Network. Now in the words of Lord Humongous. Just walk away, and there will be an end to the horror. Who's got a match, I've got the gasoline. I've never been the type to keep formation. A broken mirror and a coffee cup. Oh, such a simple disaster Cause you talk out your ass And you shit out your mouth Treat your friends like your enemies Oh, what's it all about? Does it feel good to be alone? Wild hearts cannot be broken Wild hearts lead me astray Wild hearts alone
So yeah, the 10 movies discussed in the first half, Suspiria, Haosu, Orca, Eraserhead, The Hills Have Eyes, The Sentinel, Shockwaves, aka Almost Human, <laughs> Shock, aka Beyond the Door 2, The Psychic, and Rabid. It is time, Doug, to start eliminating. So we'll do what we did before. We'll try and see if we can get these down to five or four movies. Sure. And then we will see if we agree on one. And then uh, we will whittle down the final ones. So I will I will go first. And I will say that we both acknowledged early on, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> that um, that shock can probably come off the list. Yes, I feel that that's, that's a fair one to remove. Right, we'll take that one out. Uh, right, you can go next, Doug. Uh, like let's say goodbye. Let's say goodbye to Rabbit. Right, David Cronenberg, goodbye, sir. Um, I think it's safe to say, and I'm not picking on things with shock in the title, uh, Shockwaves can probably come off this list safely. I think it's a fun movie, but yes, absolutely. Right, and uh, do you want to go next? Let's say goodbye to, as much as I, I love seeing my home province, let's say goodbye to Orca the Killer Whale. Yeah, we... we, we we barely knew you, and uh, in fact, we knew you quite well actually. And I really enjoyed it. I, I, I really enjoyed coming back to it. I, I, I want to watch it again. <laughs> so much fun watching that movie. Um, I think it's safe to say we could remove the Sentinel. Yes. Um, whilst we both really enjoy it and we think it's a great watch, and there are some heavy hitters here that is very difficult to justify its existence beside, uh, which leaves us with Suspiria, Hausu, Eraserhead. The Hills Have Eyes and The Psychic, which is five, I think. That's five. That is five, right. Do, do we think we can take another one out? You know what? I'm going to say let's remove The Psychic. It's a great uh, Giallo, but it also – it's clearly inferior to uh, Don't Torture a Duckling, and I don't think it, it really – I don't think it's as good as the other four. Cool, right. So we take that down, and now we have four. Right, I, I'm going to put my cards on the table here, Doug, and say that I think Suspiria should go through to the final, surprising no one. <laughs> uh, do you have any issue with that? Or are you are you happy to, I to think go with that? I, I'm feeling extremely conflicted right now, Duncan. <laughs> yeah, but, that's, that's cool, though, because if you don't think it's, you know, that could be one that we maybe talk about. Well, no, um, it's not that I don't think it. It's that when it comes to the other one we're going to choose... Mm -hmm. that is a big question mark for me and I wonder would I rather have two of the other ones than to have Suspiria go through uh, <laughs> because we're talking about something that I love right mm -hmm. um, yeah 
And in fact, now that we're saying this, I don't love the Hills Have Eyes enough for this for that to go forward. I don't think it deserves to. I agree with you. I think we take that one out right now. All right. And, right. My 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 thoughts coming into this. I love Hausu. I think Hausu is fucking amazing. You've heard me talk about it at great length. But to me, the two movies, just from the feeling that I got coming in after watching them all again, uh, my two that I would have picked would have been Suspiria and Eraserhead. Right. Um, uh, so that's that's where I'm sitting just now. I am, I am, listen, I am the sort of person that will go with the, the winds of change. <laughs> um, and if the right case is made, then maybe I change my opinion. Although the likelihood is the the one that I would likely change is a racer head because I genuinely think Suspiria sure. is, like I say, it's in my top five horror movies of all time. But I'm very much like yourself. I would love to see all three of these make the end list because I think the, the conversation and the case that you can make for all three of these movies is legitimately that they, they are up amongst the creme a la creme of 70s horror and I would say up near the top um, like not not like a, we're going to have 20 movies at the end and you know 10 of those movies won't make the final 10 list and you know I think that on any given day all three of these movies could make the final 10 list so um, yeah <laughs> yeah Doug don't know don't know what that means no anything. I mean you're absolutely right I just it's hard to think of a list of the best horror movies of this decade without the three of these movies on them however here's something that I'm I'm toying with which is I love Haosu I do I love it so much and I think it's one of the best and most interesting and most original movies of the 1970s of any genre mm-hmm. yeah yeah but I don't find it very horrifying and I don't find it very scary. It's more like a funhouse ride or or like a haunted house with with where you just can't predict what's going to happen next. It almost transcends the genre in a way that that you know, Suspiria kind of knocks against those limits sometimes, but it also has some of the biggest scares in any horror movie. When those eyes pop yeah. up when uh, when uh, the they're, they're looking outside and the eyes just pop up suddenly and the arm smashes through the window near the beginning of the movie, that's just one of the biggest scares I remember from any movie watching experience. And Eraserhead has that unnerving element, and while it doesn't have like jump scares, it's a movie that haunts you a little bit. It's something that stays yeah. with you. Um, while Haosu is, it's almost. And I hate to use this experiment, uh, sorry, this comparison, but it's almost like junk food in the sense that while you're within it, you're you're so engaged with it. You just want to see what happens next. And there's so much to look at and so much to experience. But when it's over, I don't know if it has any resonance. I don't know if it, it necessarily sticks with you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So with that said, I think I'm going to agree with you, Duncan. I think Suspiria and Eraserhead. Ooh. Um, I, I think... Yeah, I, I I see your I see your point with that. I, I mean, I still like if there was one thing that come away from this episode was please go and watch House. Yeah, absolutely. I want everybody <laughs> like, to see it, and you know what? See it, and then come argue with us on the Facebook group and say how stupid we were by for not putting it forward. Yeah, because I think it is like it is one of those like wonderfully unique movies that I kind of feel like even Criterion putting it out doesn't quite do justice to, to, to what like see if you're, you're one of these people that are long in the tooth and every movie's the same and you've seen this a million times watch how so trust me <laughs> you will not be saying that for long um, so there we go so moving forward representing the year 1977 Suspiria and Eraserhead 
Ooh, it's a, this, this year's got a dark twist about it, I'll tell you. Um, yeah, well, that, that was a bit quicker than I thought, Doug, but then, <laughs> then I, I like to think that me and you put good cases forward and we like to we like to articulate to each other exactly how we feel and sometimes it's quite difficult to argue against each other I think when that's I the, the thing absolutely and when I came into this episode it was with the idea that I was going to argue for Suspiria and Hausu. Uh it was only within the conversation as we were talking about Eraserhead that I realized that that if I'm going to talk about my favorite horror movies of this year that I just can't picture myself not putting it forward. And again, we recognize that Housey was something special that everyone should see, but uh, Eraserhead is, you know, it's it, both Eraserhead and, and Suspiria are the are the donning of something completely different that would launch yeah. a thousand other movies that some badly imitating, some people just feeling more free to explore different visual and uh, audio, uh, audible elements to their movies. Haosu doesn't have that level of influence, at least in the West, um, and which isn't a, to discount its quality. Everyone should see it. But the movie that, that kind of affects me more is, is Eraserhead and Suspiria. Yep. There we go, ladies and gents. Right, Doug, like I said at the beginning, you have two fantastic podcasts. I love them. I know the people love them. And those that aren't listening to them yet just don't know how much they will love them when they start listening to them. Um, please tell the listeners out there where they can check you out and your work on the internet. You can find No Budget Nightmares, which focuses on micro-budget and ultra-low-budget cinema over at nobudgetpodcast.com or on Twitter at no Budget Podcast, all one word. You can also do a search on Facebook for No Budget Nightmares and join our group and, uh, you know, recommend movies for us to watch. Our latest movie that we're covering is Dave Waskovich's uh, Tartarus, the director of Suburban Sasquatch. Yeah, you haven't heard of any of these movies. That's part <laughs> of the deal of <laughs> listening to No Budget Nightmares. You can, of course, also check out Eric Roberts is the fucking man over at ericrobertsistheman.com or on Twitter at E-R-I-T-F-M. We cover everything in the minutiae and work of one Mr. Eric Roberts. And every day we become ever closer to talking to the man himself, maybe closer now than we've ever been before. We just recently got some branded Eric Roberts is the fucking man t-shirts, which will be available at ericrobertsistheman.com very soon. You might even see them being worn by... The man himself. Who Ooh. knows? Who knows? <laughs> it, there's always potential for the future. And, of course, you can find me, Doug Tilly, on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Fantastic. Thank you very much for joining me, Doug. Now, you have a free pass for a couple of weeks now until you return. And you are no stranger to to the round table. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, have, you will be... You and Bo have been... I think you're tied for the most roundtable <laughs> uh, visits um, for podcasts under the stairs. Um, so you you know what is expected for you. You're going to get in a Rocky style training montage, um, and between now and then to get yourself in shape for for what will be a, a fairly lengthy recording, no doubt. But thank you very much for joining me for the year 1977. I'm going to take my last break of the show, ladies and gents. When I come back after it, I'm closing it out right after this. You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. And you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. This has been episode 120, where we looked at the top 10 horror movies as selected by myself and my guest for the 1977 year bracket. We have narrowed them down to two 
movies carrying forward and oh my god what a fantastic double bill of horror. Moving forward, representing 1977, we have Dario Argento's masterpiece Suspiria and the altogether weird and unsettling debut entry by David Lynch, Eraserhead. Oh my god, that's a controversial double bill if ever there was one, but I'm confident about it. I know people are going to bitch and moan about Eraserhead, but come at me bros, that movie creeps me the fuck out. Um, yeah, so that moves forward. Another two movies towards the inevitable round table. Still 20 movies to discuss before this series is over. It's pretty incredible. I want to thank my guest Doug Tilly for coming back on the show. He will return at the round table stage and it's all to play for there as we, we find out where it all went wrong or where it all went right. And I wonder um, how many people are picking the same movies we are. I think there might be some dissension on this episode in particular, but it's, it's been a great run and the feedback from you guys has been phenomenal. I'm really enjoying hearing what you guys would have put through had you been on the show. It's been, it's been pretty incredible seeing that on the Facebook group page. So yeah, like I said at the start of this episode, Monday we're back with 1978. Myself and my guest Court Psyops. And then on Thursday we close it out with 1979 myself and Andy Blockley doing that one and then a week off and then we return with La Round Table to see where it all goes. So there is a multitude of ways to check out the podcast under the stairs. As always, we promote Apple Podcasts as the main platform. You can check us out over there. Please subscribe to our feed. That way you get the shows as and when they drop and you get access to the entire back catalogue of Teapots episodes. Um, you can also leave us some... Uh, ratings and reviews over there they're very important the reviews obviously let people know why they should check out the shows and the ratings keep us up in the itunes charts for people to come across and check us out you can check us out at stitcher smart radio and soundcloud tune in google play and uh, a multitude of other ones i'm fairly sure i missed one stitcher probably uh, but there's so many places that you can check out the podcast under the stairs various different podcatchers will pick us up as well please visit our website tputzcast.com and scroll to the bottom of that page where you can sign up for our newsletter and um, we're delayed with our newsletter but i've got something in mind a big competition coming up uh, for the end of september so there won't be a newsletter out until september now but when it drops by God, will it be worth it? Um, you can check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash cast. And please visit Baz, our admin, on the twin prongs of social media sexiness over on iTunes and Twitter. Both can be followed at tputzcast. So yeah, that closes out another episode, another double episode week, and another double episode week still to come ladies and gents thank you very much for all the support and i hope you're still enjoying this run of shows as much as i had recording them and putting them together so i'm going to jump out just now and see wherever you are whatever the time zone is and whatever you're up to in this big big world please take care of yourselves this is duncan mcleish broadcasting live from under the stairs and i'm signing off Forget yourself.